first met I was just a young skinny punk Then I put on a voice for Uncle Frankie You might have thought I was drunk And I might have got you sworn in When I got Sharon Moonstruck Welcome, dear listener, to the spooky, psychedelic world of your favorite podcast, The Good, The Pod, and The Ugly, Cage Uncaged. Yes, special red-filtered episode this week. This week, take a trip into the dark journey of the abyss that is having to listen to our show. (laughs) Yeah, so we're here, guys. I mean, 20 of 20 of our original, if we count uh, Peggy Sue substitution. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. We made it. And we made it. <laughs> and this week we are joined by Ryan. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. And I think he's mainly on for the Mandy, uh, but we'll we'll get into that. Uh, he had that specifically airmarked. Like yes. Jason had the Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, 20 of 20. Um, we uh, split out the last pairing between the... Cohen Brothers and Panos Cosmatos, and then so we're doing the Panos Cosmatos uh, episode this week, doing the first two films, because for both, their second film, their sophomore film, had Nicolas Cage in it. Yeah, amazing how it worked out. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm Ken. Um, oh, I'm Jack. And you already know Ryan's on the, the but also Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, we also oh, have yeah, Thomas. that's me. Yeah. Uh, I have a quick pair, like, what these two films have in common. Ooh. Aside from the director, if you guys want to run through that. So both of these films, this would be the Beyond the Black Rainbow in 2010 and Mandy in the year 2018 have in common LSD hallucinogens, mm-hmm. full frontal male nudity, mm-hmm. face melts, yeah. head crush kills, imagined passengers in cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a deleted scene counts, both have heroin that the, uh, that the male main male character uh, visits, not with an E, but uh, the drug heroin being used by another character. Right. Mm-hmm. Both pass the Bechtel test and both have post-credit segments. Interesting. I was just wondering what the deleted scene from Mandy was. Yeah. I didn't watch that. Uh, so in the DVD coverage of Mandy, or the uh, Blu-ray, whenever he goes to pick up the crossbow, uh, which we'll get into, he... Uh, there are additional shots mm. in it, which really help talk about the amazing editing that both of these films have. Mm-hmm. And the it's if you watch it, uh, the special features uh, on the uh, Blu-ray DVD, you'll be able to better appreciate how horrible this film could have been. <laughs> yes. Either 100%. these films could have been without the scoring and without the editing mm-hmm. that's behind it. So it's really nice. It's almost like you're watching the uh, not quite raw footage because it's all uh, it was cut from the film, so it's all uh, processed. But it's you do get to see uh, what I guess the film, the lesser film that this could have been. Yeah, for sure. 
So are we going to get into Beyond the Black Rainbow first, or... Yeah. Okay. So I, I have something to say before we begin. Uh, this is our, our 48th episode, and I think I've I've tried to do plot recaps for every movie that we've watched so far, um, but for this one, <clears throat> I don't think it's really necessary, because the, <laughs> the, the plots really don't matter a whole lot with either of these movies. And as our... A uh, good friend, friend of the show, Joe Bob Briggs, told us uh, Panos Cosmatos is not interested in the plot as much yeah. as the, the mood. Yeah, atmosphere, mood, tension, fear. Because the, the plot for both of these movies are relatively simple. If you would, were to hear the plot for either of these movies, it, it, it would seem like not much yeah, going on. Totally. Um, okay. Yeah, what's interesting about these films, I guess to go into a little bit of uh, Cosmatos... Um, is that he would say that the inspiration for him, uh, and the reason that they're both set in 1983 is that, uh, when he came to Canada, uh, being, uh, immigrant, uh, he, as a child, uh, there was a rental store and he would look at the VHS tapes there and kind of imagine his own films by combining these different tapes. Right. And so he would say that he wanted to make a film like that. And, uh, you know, however outlandish the the plots might be or lacking, um, they are. Uh, it is definitely an experience. I think one reviewer of Mandy uh, said it is like Pulp Tortoski, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's pretty apt. I mean, we could probably cancel the rest of the podcast. I think I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two, those two it. words. Yeah, yeah. I think there's actually, and we we can get into it when we when we get to to Mandy. But I think there's actually maybe more going on in the plot um, than is evident on the first uh, viewing or two. I think there's a lot of like hanging threads that are kind of re- I, gestured I, at uh, and never I, resolved. Yeah, I think you can make a lot of connections. But I'm not sure if they are fully fleshed. Uh, it might be multiple tips of icebergs that you're seeing versus like just a large iceberg underneath a developed backstory. Yeah, sure, sure, it's possible. And it, I think everybody knows. Well, not everybody, but Panos Cosmatos is the son of George P. Cosmatos, the uh, great Stallone collaborator of the '80s. Great um, filmmaker. Well, he made Cobra, and uh, last week, as prep for this week, I watched Rambo: First Blood Part Two. <clears throat> <laughs> um, that's a confusing title. How does that work again? <laughs> yeah. Which would have been in pre-production right about the, the time these two movies take place since that came out in 85, right. early 85. Well, speaking of 1983, I read that uh, Panos Cosmatos thought it would be funny to set a film in the year before 1984. Because Beyond the Black Rainbow is very, very Orwellian, you might say. You might. You might. Yeah, someone. I don't know about me. So yeah, well, uh, speaking of his dad's films, he uh, also did uh, Tombstone, which he uh, yeah. And apparently, this film budget one point one million dollars for Beyond the Black Rainbow uh, was financed by DVD residuals from the movie Tombstone. Yeah, and I I read that Um, he wanted it to um, speak of him looking at VHS tapes and stuff when he was a kid. That makes a lot of sense because I think his goal with this film was to make a movie that seemed more like someone's memory of a movie than an actual movie. And we're, we're talking uh, the the Black Rainbow, something the Black yes, Rainbow. Yes, we are. 
Okay. That's correct. Yeah, so it definitely feels like a a demo version of Mandy in a lot of ways. Oh my god, I I think I would have loved this movie if I watched it a few years ago before Mandy came out, but the fact that I've seen Mandy a dozen times, uh, yeah, I found this one a bit lacking. Yeah, well, this is... uh... I, so this is my second and third viewings uh, this week of it. I had watched it earlier this year only because of Mandy. And I was like, oh, wow, what else has this guy done? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I was a little surprised that it was only this and that it had it was eight years earlier. Um, and I think that there's a lot of connections between these two films that we could talk about, um, I guess, stylistically or how they're able to execute uh, once we get through both of them. But I was curious, uh, was this other people's first time or have you come into it, had already seen it? It was my first time. It, it is interesting hearing you guys talk about it because I saw Beyond the Black Rainbow a couple years before Mandy came out. Oh. And um, did very much, you know, appreciate it as something that had, like, almost no context um, as far as uh, other contemporary filmmakers. And, uh, I mean, I think it's a great mood piece. I like to put it on just in the background while doing other things. Yes. Um, but... Uh, this was my first time seeing Beyond the Black Rainbow after having seen Mandy, and it definitely felt lacking in comparison. Yes. Um, well, mostly it's just too long. I mean, if it unlike were like Blood 70 Simple, minutes long, it would be great. I mean, how, yeah, I guess it gives better appreciation for uh, what the Coen brothers are able to do with their first two movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it's not bad. And I do, I mean, I would uh, recommend it. Uh, not to spoil anything. Um, I mean, I would I recommend it over. I haven't seen one of these, but I would recommend it over Kick Ass and Sorcerer's Apprentice, <laughs> and, which is what Cage was doing in 2010. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no, I definitely really like it too. I think it is beautifully shot, even more so than Mandy. I think that the camera angles he chooses um, to hide the budget in some places are yeah. so brilliant and. Yeah, no other filmmaker working on a small budget would ever shoot it in the way that he has. And then later on, when you actually do see um, the sets in full, it's like, oh, okay, there are actually these bizarre places that they're shooting on. He has just been choosing to hide them for the rest of the movie. And there are so many stylistic choices like that throughout it that, yeah, it did feel different enough from Mandy, but there are also a, a ton of things that, he just straight up reused in Mandy that felt after watching mm-hmm. Mandy a million times. It was like, Oh, okay. This is just a dress rehearsal for that. Is, isn't there a Reagan clip in each movie too? Yeah. This does guy, it, this yeah. guy does not like Reagan. No, he does not. <laughs> and, or Reagan is happy to be the president in 1983. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. For the Reagan thing. And also his, um, I've read in a couple interviews where Cosmatos says that both movies are inspired by the deaths of his parents. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that a lot of his talk about his movies is, is just bullshit. I think there's a lot more going on with each movie to be set in 1983 than just this VHS cover story. And while both movies carry a sense of loss that I can see maybe relating to the death of one's parents, um, there's just a lot more going on that, like, unless his parents were crazy acid serial killers, yeah. uh, doesn't doesn't really connect for me as far as the the reason why these movies exist. It seems like he has a lot going on in both films that he just doesn't like talking about. Maybe 
Right. Yeah, or maybe can't dive too deep into. But I think the thing that I do appreciate about this being in 1983 uh, for both of them is that it's not fetishized. It's not like moments of Mad Men that I didn't like where it mm-hmm. looks where it's like, hey, isn't that cool? We're in the early 60s. <laughs> or like Tarant- Tarantino or, doing the 60s. Yes. Or Needful Things, right? Like, oh, it's the Stranger 80s. Things. Did you know it was the oh, Did I say Needful Things? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm all confused because of all the fonts and the Mandy. Yeah, no, Stranger Things, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I, I say that uh, in both of these, it is, uh, especially for Black Rainbow, which I would like to talk a little bit about the plot, it is like a science fiction movie of the 1980, early 1980s. Uh, but also like how if you were to read a science fiction, it would have a lot of techno babble. In a way, something about his style helps accentuate the sci-fi-ness of that movie. And then for Mandy, whenever it's a uh, fantasy uh, fantasy horror novel, the techniques that he uses in this for sci-fi get applied, and the aesthetics, uh, the coldness of this mm-hmm. get applied to a way that's all so much more meaningful in Mandy. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like almost like the same style for both movies. And the first one's almost uh, a David Cronenberg movie from the same era. It takes place. And then Mandy is uh, mm-hmm. a revenge picture that maybe is a bit more like an American movie of the time. Um, yeah. Definitely a lot more so coldness the in the first one. Beyond the Black Rainbow is that an abused girl moots the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we want to talk any more about what actually happens in the film. Uh, I would love to hear what everyone thinks is happening in the in the film. Just uh, to Ken's point, I think it's fairly what what is known is fairly simple, and then a lot of details I think are pretty convoluted. But I would I would just love an idea of of, of what well it's it's, other it's a cult perceive is happening. It's a cult. It's like a human potential cult of some kind with some uh, medication and some some drugs and. The apprentice of the guy who started it. This is what this is my interpretation. Doctor Aboria. Yeah, he is obsessed with one of his patients that he is the daughter, his daughter or the leader cult leader's daughter. I don't know. Um, he's kind of obsessed uh-huh. with uh-huh. her and her psychic abilities. So it's that early '80s uh-huh. Stephen King psychic abilities in a young person, um, and. He's kind of the main character, which which may be the main drawback for me, because he's great, but he's fucking creepy and and not yeah, a fun his, person his to name's follow. Barry he has Carl Sagan hair, and he has these great eye rolls that he he saves for like his roommate, and when he's talking to Doctor Aboria, who he shoots up with uh, something, probably heroin later. Yeah, and his feet. Uh-huh. Very gruesome scene. Uh, absolutely very, um, hilarious. Very scene. restrained Cagean performance. Like I feel well, like Cage is already there. Yeah, you know. I, I was wondering if we did have to cast Cage in this. So let's put a pin in it, but give us some thought to get lead up to it. Like, what? where would he fit in this film? I'd because cast him as the girl. And Mandalay. <laughs> yeah, just not speaking for most of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, it, uh, I mean, it opens with an infomercial from Dr. Oboria, uh, shot like an 80s, uh, well, I guess infomercial, like I said. It's yeah, a yeah. recruitment video about human potential. And then, yeah, for most of the film, Barry and Elena, who's got supernaturally small eyebrows and doesn't speak much but looks up in a creepy way, uh, they're trying to break each other down. But, uh, and uh, I think the main 
like uh, whenever he starts uh, slamping his pen against the uh, clipboard, and you hear the sound just echo and get louder and louder and louder. Like so much of this film, like Ken said, you could talk about the plot, but really, I think you could, uh, as Ryan does, not listen to any of the audio and, and make it have it work. I, I think at the end of it, I, I could think this film could be four times as long, and I would be just as into it. It, it could also be <laughs> Which twenty is minutes both a long. Positive and a negative review. <laughs> oh, see, I think this should be. I think if this movie were 25 minutes shorter, it would be perfect Yeah, for what it's trying to do. Yeah, so there's a lot of business that takes place inside the Institute, which is, seemed really weird to me that Barry is so focused on this one girl. And then I was wondering if there was anybody else in the I the wondered Institute. the same thing. It seemed awfully empty for such nice upkeep that they have. I mean, somebody has to clean that place. And- and Barry comes home at, uh, at some point, and he has a roommate who might be his wife or might be somebody. We don't really know, but he doesn't treat her very well. I mean, no. maybe because she he catches her falling asleep and pretending like she's meditating <laughs> and then offers him uh, brown rice and boiled asparagus or something in the fridge. Yeah, yeah very, very new age health food. Very 1983 new age, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the movie is completely focused on him trying to uh, have her – uh, have Elena um, emote or react to anything that Barry's doing. And Barry has right. yeah, this creeper vibe about him. It's, and that's like the first, like, over half of the film it feels like. Yeah. Until, uh, we get a flashback to yeah. 966, which is supposed to be, I think, 1996, but they cut off the one. Yeah. yeah. Which is really cool. And that is a whole uh, segment in black and white. Where we go into Barry, younger Barry, and younger Doctor Aboria, and a a woman. Um, do we know who the woman is? It's Elena's mom, I think. Yeah, it's it's her mom. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But we don't see her in the film because she dies during childbirth, I think. Or something. Is what they say. Yeah. Yeah, or something happens in that that void. Yeah, and this void is pretty awesome. You have um, the Barry character coming out of this black pool. Mm-hmm. covered in black and oil. And you guys, I don't think you've seen Zandali, but there's a point where Nick Cage, the artist, <laughs> the New Orleans artist in Zandali, starts screaming and with black all over himself. He's like painted his body black. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Th- this is creeping hey, up on my must-watch list. <laughs> yeah, but that... yeah. Ultimately, it reminds me of like Akira live action, though, where like you have these tra- this trapped, precocious, psychic... Uh, like Ken said, um, Stephen King esque uh, young young woman uh, who has powers of maybe telekinesis, maybe telepathy, and uh, who doesn't really speak throughout it. And eventually, she breaks out. Like, um, and, and uh, after Barry takes off his prosthetics, yeah, his prostheses, which is which is his yeah. wig and his eyes. Yeah. Oh, when he takes off his and wig, murders. The, uh, it's pretty groom. Groups the on. glue, yes, the gooey glue, the yeah, glue holding his wig on. <laughs> so he then murders his roommate slash maybe wife uh, slash worst cook in the earth, on earth, um, <laughs> and goes back to the institute to maybe like break Elena or just he doesn't care anymore. He's gone slightly mad, slightly, and we're li- and Elena. Uh, he notices that the I guess the other person in this film and the reason that it passes the Bechtel test is a orderly slash nurse slash, slash assistant we're not quite secretary. sure what she is I don't know what she was either 
Yeah, but who's a smoker uh, and very finds some ash that's been next to some hidden files of his, which are at first start off like um, uh, it's called something stats, but it's like whatever you have the old anatomy books and you have the the plastic that goes over it. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. you start flip you start flipping through that and it starts to get to like some weird female anatomy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but she finds that and Barry knows that she's found it and Barry sends her in with a tray of like white food. Maybe it's like mashed potatoes and cauliflower. <laughs> it's really I felt really bad for Elena for a number of reasons. But one of them was just the food that she's being served. And Elena kills her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He turns off the the pyramid Psychic control control pyramid <laughs> the big yeah. di- the big huge dial the hand sized dial yeah <laughs> which it, and, and it turns off a pyramid which looks like a zoomed in version of just something that you would find at somebody's house maybe in their living room uh, for mood or aesthetics <laughs> well, we get some rocks around it we or get zen something garden. we get something similarly shaped at the end of the next movie mandy when uh, he goes into the uh with the church with the yeah. cross yeah 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 and yeah, so uh, Elena kills uh, perhaps a nameless number head woman. Um, and then uh, Barry releases um, Daft Punk to come out, like some type of weird robot. Oh, thing. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Psychonauts. Yeah. I'm not sure who those dudes were. I don't think there's any explanation of what they are, but he just he comes up with that name for him. Yeah, and so eventually she breaks out. Like, she's chased by somebody who's bound up and, like, starts licking the glass, like, chasing her. And well, that's that's what I was going to say. pipes and ductworks. Is that you don't know if there's any other patients for most of the movie, but it seemed like that thing was something that they're studying or doing tests on. And actually, at first, when we saw it, because it is bald, I thought that that was... Um, uh, Barry, who had somehow deteriorate, deteriorated to that state, and it isn't until the next scene that we see him in that right. I realize that that was a completely different person. Yeah, yeah, Jack, the first time I saw it, I also was confused in that same manner. Yeah. But okay, I think good. maybe it's maybe the, a precursor to Barry, maybe, right? Like, it seems like maybe they've sent other people into this void in 1966, and right. Barry's yeah. the one who survives. I have this elaborate theory about what's going on in the movie, but I don't have any information that like you guys haven't seen so i have no idea if any of it's accurate but i think there's a a like you have a q anon version of this <laughs> yeah yeah so like uh q dr aboria <laughs> no um i think what's supposed to have happened is dr aboria was messing around with acid tests and started this new age cult in the 60s um and recruited barry and elena's mom um and something went wrong with Barry's first dosing, and he spent an indef- undefined amount of time in this psycho- psychic void. Um, and Elena is born, and they discover she has psychic powers. And throughout the 70s, they study that while the rest of the cult sort of fades away, all the other members sort of, uh, and whoever provided the money to build this facility, they all leave. And by 83, the cult is dilapidated. There's only a few members left. Um, they have this one patient that they're obsessed with trying to figure out what makes her psychic. And the psychonauts are failed experiments at recreating Elena. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, the background for what's happening. But like and, I said, I mean, there's no... And there's always that backsliding that you see, like, um, uh, with Haight-Ashbury, people going from, not that pot's a gateway drug, but going from pot to heroin and mm-hmm. being a shooting gallery. So I think that the, the Dr. Oboria has gone that route, might have been part of that historical trajectory of... Yeah, that that makes sense. The, the hippie burnout that affected yeah. a lot of uh, people... Yeah, Ryan, I'd agree with that. I'd say that's probably pretty accurate to what's going on in in the movie. It could also be but very, then she gets very, out. Um, very twisted uh, X Men fan fiction, and uh, Barry is Professor X. Um, the girl is yes, yes, yes. Jean Grey. The little robots are the Sentinels. That's pretty nerdy of you. Uh-huh. Oh wait, wait, keep going, keep going. <laughs> that's as far as I got. Okay. I was hoping you might be able to tell us who the two uh, metalheads are. The guy without a shirt who, uh, and the other guy he calls fat fuck. It's the McKenzie brothers, right? <laughs> <laughs> the the fat one does look a lot like Cosmatos. Yeah, I was actually, I thought, my wife's much better at uh, facial recognition than I am. And so I asked her if it was him uh-huh. and she said that it wasn't. Uh-huh. So I'm going to take her word for it. Yeah, I don't, I looked it up in the cast casting okay. afterwards and is, I don't think is that is. one of her listed skills facial recognition <laughs> she, like, like yeah. on her resume I mean, if you get her trading card she is like power nine on that wow <laughs> very impressive yeah one of many impressive things about her the scene with the but, mckenzie uh, brothers is really strange because it it the movie pretty much ends right after it and it's yeah it's, it's a not really shift. necessary um it sucks it's the worst scene in the movie easily it's so dumb. Here's the okay. So I think we all have a different opinion about adaptation. Mine being right, and yours being whatever yours is. And <laughs> I was wondering about that because what's fascinating about this film is how anticlimactic the ending is mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so at the very end, um, you have Barry driving his Lotus Spirit Turbo Series Three. Thank you, imcdb.org. That's the Internet Movie Car Database. Amazing. Legit. No, it's a legit thing. I believe and, you. Yeah. I, hope, I don't believe uh, that. <laughs> so he's driving, Barry's driving his Lotus of Spirit Turbo Series 3, and uh, which we've seen him do a few different times. I drive to the house in it. It's this bitchin' car that looks like it should be from the future. Right. And, it's an amazing car. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's bald. He's taking his uh, contact lenses out, so he looks uh, freakish, um, like maybe something from Marilyn Manson, 19, late 1990s video. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and comes upon two guys out in a forest who are drinking beer and listening to metal. One of them goes to take a piss. He kills him. Comes around, kills the other guy because he thinks he smells Elena's sex on him, and which seems impossible just given the timeline of when elena gets out yeah. yeah very much so yeah um and just yeah how that would happen um given her development her uh just um socially and intellectually i, I think she's on the run um but still he's very psycho kills her barry and elena are confronting each other and instead of like this weird tetsuwa like Akira, <laughs> like things are blowing up and like Neo Tokyo is uh, turning into some type of monster from below the ground, nuclear monster from below the ground full of psychic energies. Um, he trips on something, very like kind of trips. Maybe Elena forced him to trip or put something on his stuck foot. in a cactus. Stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe she manifests that from the ground or not, falls and hits his head. Yeah. 
And then she wanders off towards a suburb. Yeah, that's it. And the film ends. Yeah. And I think there's kind of an ex machina thing with the ending, right? Where she's this... We've sympathized with her the whole movie, but she's actually this malicious force which is going to go destroy society. I don't know. I mean, are we sure on that? Because I know that Barry tells her the reason that she can't get out. And Barry, again, has like weird anatomical vaginal drawings <laughs> that he's <Yeah>. made. <laughs> And maybe doing actual research, maybe just trying to break her down. Um, maybe is the reason that Doctor Aboria uh, is addicted to something. We don't. We don't really know. Does kill his uh, roommate by crushing her head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it could motif. be. What's that? That's a motif. A cosmatos. We're going to expect it in the next. Movie yeah, no, that definitely is. Yeah, um, but. We're not. Uh, he's definitely set up to be the villain. There could be two bad guys in it, or two. Or, but he is trying to protect her from the outside world. He claims yeah. that the world is like uh, Jack was saying. Maybe 1984 is coming. He's trying to protect her from 1984. Well, yeah, that's the thing with or, the last shot, which is really depressing because that's not a real suburb that she's entering. It's a it's a fake suburb with. Um, rows of copy-pasted houses that are exactly the same that seem to stretch on endlessly. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, someone who read 1984 once. I've never read 1984 or Animal Farm. Fuck both those books. But it's like she's leaving one prison just to enter another one. I know that's really, like, that's really lame when you put it like that, but I can't think of another way to say it. I I mean, that's Repo Man. (laughs) Right? Maybe Repo Man? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I. Uh, who knows? I don't know what. I don't know if her future is bright or not. The not. Um, the score doesn't really tell us for sure. Uh, at, but I don't think that she's necessarily sinister. Um, I just think that she's been raised. We know that she has this out of control power, and she's been oppressed in such a way that she's never had experience to control it. It's controlled artificially. And so what will happen when you let out this woman mm. who can kill with her mind into yeah. the regular? And here's why I think we might be getting a little too deep into like a uh, backstory or plot with the Panos film is that uh, she doesn't like we could argue about this or, or try and discuss it. But I don't know if he thought through that part or not. No, I think he was like, that's a great didn't. way of ending. It. Here, yeah. Here's a he, nice one. That's an ending. I've he, seen that in a film. That is an ending. And he we're had a visual here. and a Because if it was that if, if she was being regulated. She definitely was being regulated by the pyramid, the glowing pyramid. Yeah. But that thing went away, and she doesn't seem to have any super cool powers when she's leaving the facility. When she's attacked by that guy who's in uh, bound uh, and basically like uh, he's, he's rolled up like he has no arms or legs. Uh-huh. Uh, she doesn't explode his head with her mind like in a scanner's way. She doesn't convince him that uh, the room's on fire using uh, telepathy. So uh, maybe her powers are more in control than what – we would know, but we, I guess I don't think at the end of the day we, we do know. Oh, no. Uh, almost all of my idea about what's happening in this movie is extra textual. Like, there's yeah. no... He obviously doesn't give you enough information to yeah. conclusively make these Well, dis- maybe he'll choices. write a book about it. He'll make the novelization <laughs> himself. Read what? by Jennifer Jason Lee. One thing I, I liked about the movie was its lack of context and, and how for the first... 30 or 45 minutes, you, you're trying to put the pieces together because you're used to movies kind of fitting together. And it's really not mm-hmm. until you get to that flashback that you really have any context for what's going on. Um, 
But I, I kind of like having a movie that subverts what we expect from movies and exposition. Mm. Um, and I think he does a better job of it in Mandy, uh, yeah. in the next movie, doing uh, similar things. Um, but I, I really like that. I mm-hmm. like uh, sometimes that a movie doesn't tell me everything that's going on and tells me at its mm-hmm. own pace and its own time. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I, and one of the things that is so great with this that we haven't even mentioned, I don't think, the score was done by uh, the keyboardist for one of my favorite bands. The Doors. <laughs> <laughs> Vancouver-based Black Mountain. Snow shit. Yep. Really? Yes. Yeah, I don't I don't know them, Jack. Are they are they good? They're amazing. Yeah, they're they've done some of my favorite albums. Now the Yeah, the, I I love the music in the movie, but I've never heard uh anything. Their else music is guy. totally like that, but with lyrics. So is, is it the keyboardist from the, the current iteration of the band or the iteration at the time the movie was made? It must have been at the time the movie okay. was made. Because they've gone through some changes since. Yeah. Speaking to to what you were saying, uh, Ken, uh, whenever I think about his movies um, in particular, um, I think of an Orson Welles quote from after he had made, uh, after Citizen came, maybe before he made The Magnificent Ambersons, talking about how, uh, and then this is something that he even recalled later in his life, but um, that he felt that film as an art form had so much promise and the narrative storytelling that had developed in its first 40 or 50 years was really like a very limited uh, scope of what uh, uh, a director could do Mm -hmm. with the medium. And then later in his life, he would often lament that very few directors besides like Kubrick and a few others who were uh, active in, in his lifetime, but very few directors had pursued uh, cinema uh, outside of this, traditional narrative structure and that we were losing a lot of potentiality. Yeah. And I feel like Cosmatos is really pushing what is possible in a, in a narrative film. Yeah. He really walks that fine line of it's not, a, um, I wouldn't call it like a Lynchian art film in the sense of like Lynch's art films, like mm-hmm. a, like a short film. Um, I think that he's somehow more accessible yeah. and even more enjoyable, uh, and I'm saying this for both of his films. I, uh, it's like Mandy almost makes Beyond the Black Rainbow redundant. Yeah. Uh, if it was only if we only had the one, of course we wouldn't be talking about it because Mandy's amazing and Cage is amazing, and that's why we're going to talk about it here in a moment. But uh, I think that if uh, Mandy never came out, I would be perfectly fine having this film in my library. Yeah. yeah. That's how I and, feel about and it. And watching it almost in the background, like uh, Ryan does, uh, working on something else and then catching my favorite moments. Because uh, it's visually arresting and right. a lot of it. Yeah. I, um, I think what, yeah. um, in my estimation, what really brings this movie down is that scene with the two dudes listening to metal because that does feel like something that is totally an homage to, you know, a, a cheesy 80s movie. But... Right. Not that it doesn't fit in with the tone, but I think it's just there because it's a funny homage. And in Mandy, all that shit, when it brings in, you know, 80s grindhouse stuff, it is there. But also the context behind it means it needs to be there. The thing that I think is more developed in Mandy that maybe is like a germ here is that the victims in this are two guys that would have been 
considered like potential villains in a in an eighties film. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not skinheads, but they are like on the outside of society, and they're not being killed for any like uh, like horror tropes uh, sins, like uh, premarital sex or. I don't know, walking off alone or like all the, all the things that are kind of like punishments for teenagers in horror films. Uh, instead, they are just two dudes who are mean to each other and drink beer and like heavy metal music who are victims for no good reason, victims of this new age cult. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that there's that, like you say, Jack, it's much done much better in Mandy, but I think the germs there, I think that mm-hmm. there is, a little bit to it. And if this were four times as long or twice as long, like <laughs> and you could continue on with her in the suburbs, you could keep going and it wouldn't fill the abruptness of that ending and that tonal shift to talk, to have these guys out uh, around their campfire wouldn't, uh, I don't think it would stick uh, as deeply uh, in memory or, or your right. call. For me, um, just everything that happens, I just, I don't know how you could satisfyingly uh, resolve the movie without her leaving the facility. But for me, the movie's weakness is totally when she leaves. That everything, you break the spell of yeah. the, the hypnotic, uh, you, psychedelic you give, landscape. You give Barry a motorcycle and a laser gun. <laughs> and you have him try to attack her while, the, while she's taking over Neo uh, Cincinnati or uh-huh. Vancouver, wherever it is. Yeah, I mean, a large part of that breaking of the spell is that's really when you see how low budget of a movie it, it is for the first time when you're like, when she's walking through the industrial facility. I also think they switch from 35 millimeter to digital mm. when she gets out of the facility. It's like a much clearer, mm. um, less uh, aesthetically pleasing yeah. um, cinematography and uh it just it it looks like it costs a dollar after she leaves leaves the facility. That's true. Yeah. Um some similarities with Mandy. Uh same director. You know what? Um both films feature uh the same shot of well not the exact same shot, but the same shot of the camera mounted on the hood of the car as it's speeding and everything else around it is kind of dark, but the inside is very brightly illuminated, which is a really great visual Mm -hmm. thing. And both films feature someone getting stabbed in the mouth with the end of a blade and blood spraying out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of boxes to be checked for his next movie that people are looking for. He needs to straight up do something completely different. But I do think that it aesthetically, uh, I mean, as far as set design, and this might be the lower budget thing, um, does feel more like a science fiction film in angles and uh, the whiteness of the interiors, the kind of 2001 um, interiors. I think uh, that uh, aesthetic works towards it being like a science fiction horror film more so than, than the next film. And in, uh, in, and also in tone and in the music itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, 100%. So, and Mandy is also co-written by um, uh, Aaron, Aaron Stewart on. I think I'm saying uh, his last name correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think 
I follow him on on Twitter and um, coincidentally just did before Mandy, before I, I had any context for his work. And I think he's bringing a lot of the fantasy stuff to Mandy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, his Thor run right now is like heavy metal or something, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so that makes some sense. Yeah. Um, it makes sense that he would also maybe reach out to him or the producers did to help punch up or change the script for Mandy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the origination for, I don't know if that was his idea or, uh, Cosmetos's, but he definitely, uh, likes the heavy metal fantasy stuff. Whereas Cosmetos seems more like a sci-fi metal guy. Yeah. So what would you put cage in this film? If you could the girl, would he be your Barry? No, he'd be. I, I already decided. He's <laughs> a girl. I love the idea of Cage as Elena. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know uh, if if at this if in 2010 Cage had restrained in his in his toolbox, but um, he very much seemed like he could have done done Barry, and it would have been, I think, a pretty similar performance. I think the guy who who plays Barry captures a lot of that um, same energy. I think Barry's physique, though the actor who plays, there's all, I mean, all these uh, actors are Canadian, um, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the things that helps sell that. Just his uh, lift, light um, skin uh, skinniness is right. Is, right. Um, he, he, and I'm not sure that Cage at this point of doing like Bad Lieutenant <laughs> is quite in that shape. So, did anybody think that uh, the the casting of the the guy who plays the the doctor? And uh, the wig he wears, uh, I, I kept thinking he looked a lot like David Cronenberg at the time. I don't know if that was intentional. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that's very similar looks and physique and hair. Damn. And it's definitely um, Barry's outfit. Barry's normal casual wear is similar to what James Woods wears in Videodrome. I think there's definitely a strong Cronenbergian. That, that's just thing Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. I mean, and I really got to watch more. Cronenberg, but the two movies I've seen of his haven't been very well directed, so I've been hesitant to go in on his earlier stuff. Which which have you seen, Jack? I watched the two um uh the two uh the two Vigo movies. Oh history oh, of violence uh-huh, and uh-huh. um Eastern Promises. I love Eastern History Promises. of Violence. But <clears throat> yeah, I mean those are so fundamentally Cronenberg's one of those guys who like almost has two careers. Mm-hmm. Um because everything up until the crash the probably oh, okay. is is body horror and is really disturbing right. and hypersexual. And then yeah, he becomes more of a uh he kind of gets lost in other genres Interesting. Um, after crash, sometimes to good effect. And then sometimes he has spider. Yeah, Spider was kind of like I think where he figured out he had to start changing it up and and started casting around for different types of films because for me Spider is a really weak. It is extremely mm-hmm. weak. But yeah. um, yeah, Jack, you would love if you like these movies. Video uh, drums, you should watch Video Drums, Video yeah. Drum Rabbit. Yeah, <clears throat> like I had I'll the bring some of them to you. I had the Video Drum DVD sitting in my room for about a year and a half, and I never got around to watching it. <laughs> That is such an amazing film. Oh, it was a that library like... movie. Oh, that's what they kept calling me about. Yeah. Jack, Coral. <laughs> no, well, that's like the county library, library because... Did we lose them? Yeah, I mean, oh, no. I don't think there's much more to talk about uh, beyond the Black Rainbow. No, yeah, I think we can move no. on to Google reviews. Great Midnight, great midnight movie. 
great psychotropic movie. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, within the context of Mandy, but also as a, as a mood piece. I, c- I can picture pl- it playing in the background. Yeah. Uh, I, oh, I would like to say, though, we didn't really discuss it, but the uh, the 1966 flashback scene, um, very Begotten-inspired, I think, um, and also the best part of the movie. It's a standout sequence. What inspired? Begotten. It's yeah, a, I haven't seen that since college, but uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a messed up that's a messed up movie. <laughs> it's a it's a grainy, bare, barely it's shot it, basically that sequence where you can't really it's, it's all white and overblown and grainy. That's yeah. the whole movie. Begotten. It's like it has like God killing himself oh. and stuff. It's like pie the end of pie. Yeah, yeah. Whenever he's having his, everybody figures out the number. Oh shit! Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's three point one four. Never mind. <laughs> All right, Google reviews. Ghost Boy gives it one star. Hello to anyone wanting to watch this movie. I just have a few words I would like to say to you before you indulge and bask in all of its glory. I recommend having a root canal done by a crummy dentist after watching to help alleviate some of the pain. If you really desire to experience, then I can suggest taking some acid, then smashing your head into a brick wall. Actually works. Yes. Long story short, the movie was a waste of time. Put some effort. See, I See that's know. a five-star review to me. Everything about that. Is great. <laughs> also, I don't know. Like, if you have ADHD, you take Ritalin, right? Or you take a, basically something that's like an amphetamine. You it levels you out. It has a paradoxical effect. I wonder if you took if you watch this on acid, if it would just seemed completely normal. Yeah. I, so <laughs> I was gonna wait till Mandy to ask about, um, and if it's not something that you all want to talk about, but about. Uh, your guys' experience with acid and if how that related to your viewing of his his films. Uh, I, I, I say no to drugs. I think all that stuff's really bad for you. <laughs> I, I think I yeah. I think the alcohol, tobacco, firearm, and LSD <laughs> department uh, bureau might be listening in. <laughs> sure, sure. They sure. are big fans. Uh, thank you for all your work. Yeah, uh, I, I pass on answering forget. this question. Same. Fair, fair. <laughs> Understood. That's why we brought you on the podcast, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of films that are made that attempt to convey the experience of tripping. Uh, maybe like Fear and Loathing being uh, the most famous one from from my lifetime. Um, I think his movies are convey the the psychedelic experience better than anything I've ever seen. Like, just what it feels like to be on mm. acid is very much... Probably with all of the oral effects, the audio effects. The and audio the, effects. The cross-cutting the, and fading. Yeah, and particularly when you get into um, Mandy, some of the things that happen while people are hanging out or talking are just very much the way I have felt while uh, taking this illicit up. And, in, and similar, I guess, to how there's never a, like there, he's not drawing attention to being 1983. He's not like po- hanging a, a flag on it and pointing at it mm-hmm. and putting it in bright neon. I think in the same way, whatever that psychedelic experience might be of the film, it's not uh, like uh, the Johnny Depp movie you just mentioned. Oh, where, Fear and Loathing. Where yeah. It, yeah, it feels a little cartoonish. Yeah, right. well, and I don't know, and that's part of why I, I wanted to ask before, because I don't know how someone who hasn't had psychedelic experiences would, if this would just be like garbage to them, <laughs> you know, just like totally 
a waste of time and 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 not worth anything. It might be uh, synthetic or celluloid uh, LSD. Like you don't ever have to do a hallucinogen if you watch these films. I mean, this film does put me in a psychedelic mindset, whether that's uh, a memory of my past experiences that's being retriggered or. But yeah, only this, only these films, and Enter the Void, which I hated. Mm are the only movies where I felt like watching them made me, made me trip. Not, I think Jason was talking about, um, uh, Colorado space. You didn't get that for Colorado space. That does, um, have some, uh, situational elements that, that recall the psychedelic experience, but it doesn't make me feel like I'm on acid. Mm -hmm. Like putting, putting beyond the black rainbow on in a dark room on the projector screen. It saves and you fifteen minutes in. I saves feel you like ten dollars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> How are we doing on the Google reviews? Uh, Fernando, say, 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 uh, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his last name. Gives it three stars. Never seen it, but it looks good. Probably will watch it one day. <laughs> David K says, "Great job, Fernando." This was the movie version of an artist welding together a few pieces of trash and calling it a sculpture. Whoa. Yes. Another. Another. Secret five-star review. <laughs> five-star review. I would agree uh, totally. Bunny Carlson gives it one star. It was a waste of time watching. Kitris XD gives it five stars. This film is hypnotic and trippy. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Thank you, Google Reviews. Yeah, thank you. Are we going to take a quick is, break? Is it just volume? Is that how Google works? Is, are people just leaving reviews of movies they haven't seen? Because if you review certain amounts of them, you get to a higher tier? Yeah, it's like a, a pyramid scheme. Yeah, it's, it's Scientology okay. and Google are pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I feel like Ghost Boy, I feel like you guys have read a review by him before. We may have. It we was may a, have. That was a, quite a review. Yeah. It was negative. Uh, he put a lot of effort into it. That name does sound familiar. Yeah. Or it could just be because right. we watch Ghost Rider. Yeah. Well, you know what we should do is we should probably Scientology him. If they're the same thing, Google and Scientology. Just look them up on the Scientology. Shout out to the browser. Scientology Institute in downtown Portland. Love you guys. Thanks do you for remember, listening. Do you remember the Scientology infomercials from the early 80s? The Dianetics? The Dianetics? Yeah. Yeah. That, that had... Uh, I mean, the cover of that looked like a Stephen King cover. Yeah. With the mountains. I always and, thought it looked like an awesome fantasy story with the volcano Yeah, I didn't exploding. realize it was, a, it was a way of improving yourself and getting rid of operational thetans. Yeah. I can't... Don't they legally have to tell you what the alcohol content is of a beer? Yeah. Why? I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this old German premium lager that I bought because the world knows no finer. And I wanted to get into my... Um, Heavy metal uh, state of mind, and well, I could find out that it's Union made and brewed in Pittsburgh. I can't find on it mm. like what the alcohol content actually is. It's a lager, right? Yeah, so it shouldn't be that bad. No, it should be like three and a half percent. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I just don't want to take the knife out and shotgun this without knowing for sure. It's also twenty-four <laughs> ounces, I think. Yeah, it's twenty-four ounces. That's so. a big boy. Okay. I have a special announcement to make. Uh, they decided to let us do it on the podcast, even though it's a pretty big deal. But we, we kind of were the people who made it happen. A few weeks ago, we started the uh, Restore the Abbeyverse hashtag <laughs> online. And um, 
I mean, we have, we have, I mean, it, it just went, it went crazy. Um, I don't know if you saw Justin Timberlake on the Tonight Show, but he was wearing a, a Ben Affleck Daredevil shirt with Restore the Abbeyverse on it. Jesus. <laughs> um, and it really took off when Grimes tweeted about it, and she t- tweeted to restore all verses, but mostly the Abbeyverse. And then Elon Musk <laughs> retweeted it and attached uh, Jeff Bezos and mm-hmm. said, Yo, Bezdog, this would be a great in-flight movie in space. Uh, make it happen. Yeah. So it's going to happen. They're going to do like Alan Moore did with the Charlton characters and made Watchmen, just change them a little bit. But it's a done deal. It's happening. That's um, great. So uh, they, they're changing the characters slightly. So the, the cast is going to be Nicolas Cage. Um, instead of Ghost Rider, they're calling it the Ghostly Spoke. Um, and instead of a skull, <laughs> he has a, a spinning tire on his head. And it's like flaming, like a mohawk. Uh, proof of concept looks great. Uh, ben Affleck is going to be uh, Mike McDougal, lawyer by day, and McBlindo by night. Mm-hmm. So it's a Daredevil <laughs> character. Uh, Jennifer Garner, instead of Electra, she's going to be called Betty Battery. I don't know what that is, but um, <laughs> Thomas Jane coming back as the Punisher, but they're going to call him the uh, Homeowner's Assassinator. <laughs> uh, but the fellow members of the squad just call him Hoa Joe. Okay. Um, so the Fantastic Four is just going to be a trio now because they can't afford Chris Evans. And it's going to be called the Thickly Trio. Um, <laughs> Horatio Hornblower is going to be back as Goo Man. Uh, what's his name from The Shield is going to be back as Crumble Duke. And Jessica Alba is going to be the Invisible Woman. But they're just going to call her Where'd She Go? Uh, <laughs> Wesley Snipes uh, is a half vampire called Little Fang. Um, Eric Bana is going to be the Hulk, but it's going to be a different color, and they're going to call him Gamma Dick. Oh my and, god! <laughs> and the, the last part is the Man Thing, which is kind of tragic because uh, Conor McGregor was going to do the mocap and the voice for it, but then he broke his ankle in the UFC fight last night. Oh, uh, that's very timely of you. Yeah. So um, topical humor. So that uh, the character is now going to be from uh, made into the Man Thing in prison in New York. And he's going to be called the Thing Thing from Sing Sing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's called the Vengeance Squad, and uh, it's happening. So That's we great. did it, guys. And that actually segues into what I was going to talk about, which is our buddy Bezos, shout out, actually just greenlit our Mandy prequel TV series. It's going to be 13 episodes, and it's going to be about Red Miller's backstory, and it's simply called Red. Oh, I like it. Uh, Nicholas Cage is going to have some of those Marvel green dots on his face to do uh-huh. the de-aging, but he has refused to um, shave his beard, so it looks pretty weird. It looks like the Irishman. Oh, so they, he has a beard when he's filming, <laughs> but then they took the beard away and, and yes. post? Like Justice League. That's, that's nonsense. <laughs> I can't wait for that. Well, it's a true thing that's happening. So. Yes, you heard it here on the podcast, so it is 100% true. Good segue to Mandy, yes, though. Just like in the mill bag this week, uh, someone emailed the <laughs> Gmail account, the good, the pod, the ugly at gmail.com, um, asking if my comments on Jack meant that he was really uh, not yet 18 years of age, and if he wanted to, asking if he wanted to meet Ian McKellen and maybe be an X Men. <laughs> Some guy named Brain Singer. Singer? Singer Brain Singer. It sounds like LSD, doesn't it? Brain Singer? <laughs> yeah. Weird handle. Cousin to window pane. Brain singer. So. All right, Nicholas Cage I don't and Mandy. Know if you want to respond to that? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's one of my favorite Nicolas Cage performances of all the episodes we've watched, or uh, the movies we've watched and all the episodes we've done. So I, I watched this trailer when it first dropped. You sent it to me years ago. We're going all the way back to the trailer. And if you haven't seen the trailer, <laughs> it's pretty much the whole movie condensed down into two minutes, but it is a piece of art in itself. It is one of the best trailers out there. And I watched uh-huh. it a million times, and I was so pumped, and I was like, there's no way that this movie is going to be as good as the trailer. And then it came out, and we watched it, and it's actually better than the trailer. And it's become one of my all-time favorite movies. It's probably my fourth favorite movie. I've seen it, I think this was probably the, I've probably seen it over a dozen times wow. now in the wow. couple years that it's been out. I bought the Blu-ray immediately Did- after watching it the first time. It's just, oh, it's so amazing. you did go see it in theaters? No, we didn't, which sucked. Did you? Yeah, the wife and I did. Oh, yeah. We saw it at Cinema 21. Damn. Um, and, yeah, it was a great crowd experience. Yeah, yeah. We saw uh, – I saw it at midnight maybe on opening night at Cinema 21. Okay, oh, you might have even recommended it to me. Because at yeah. the time, I, I was uh, so-so on whether or not I would watch a Cage film. Yes, yes. Yeah, the uh, I saw it with our friend Riley – and he was really, uh, I think he enjoyed it. He's a big horror horror guy, but uh, he was really traumatized by it. And <laughs> afterwards he was like, wait, so that's what you think being on acid is like? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that that's pretty. And he's like, I never want to do that. I don't know why you would do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, it- Cosmatos, as we learned from listening to Joe Bob Briggs' uh, interludes when he showed Mandy, um, took a lot of drugs in high school, uh, had to give them up, was very depressed. Uh, he had given up horror movies at an early age. Um, and when he gave up drugs and after some therapy, he went back to the things that he loved. Um, and that, But this must have been around the time that in the early 2000s, yeah. late 90s. Yeah. Um, and then his parents obviously passing away. His mom was a, a fairly famous painter. Mm-hmm. And uh, sculptist. S- sculpt, sculptress. Sculptress, yes. So between his dad and his mom and living in, was it Sweden? It was the, all over the, the birthplace place, right? of doom metal. Yeah. Which explains a lot. Uh, and obviously Vancouver. And then um, I don't know if he went with his dad to, to shoot awesome classics like Cobra. Or Leviathan, but mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and all that led to his his obsession with his youth and the music and the the artwork and, and the movies and the the videotapes, like you were talking about, Thomas. Uh, he spent six or seven years on this script, um, and Thomas sent over the script last night. I got through about half of it before I had to do some other wow. things. I've read it before, yeah. so no biggie. So uh, I like what they yeah, cut there's out. A few, there's a few changes. But uh, you could tell a lot of work went into the script because it is it is fairly dense. As Holy shit. As... This, is, this is the most bizarre script I've ever read in my life because he describes the music in it and he describes the visuals in it in a way that and completely breaks the rules of screenwriting. Like you're not, you're not supposed to do that. The oh, titles, and the fonts, yeah. He describes what the titles are going to be, what mm-hmm. they're going to look like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the whole movie is there. <laughs> it's um, amazing. It is, it is wow. mind-blowing. Uh, uh, speaking of the, dr- the drug thing and um, just experiences with like horror films and, and um, avoiding them, apparently uh, Cage signed on 
um, without having uh, watched the Black Beyond the Black Rainbow, which they asked him, Elijah Wood or one of the producers asked him to watch. And he said that he had nightmares and couldn't sleep well for a week after watching it. Jesus. Wow. So it deeply affected him. But also he was on board for this based off of the script without having seen the first film. <laughs> so I have no idea what movie he thought he was making at first. <laughs> well, he might have – He might have. this is my theory, is that he was going to phone it in and do one of – you know, he does these – he does terrible low-budget horror movies, pay the ghost all the time. Um, yeah, the the money would fall right through its fucking hands, ghost. Right? So stupid. It's like River Sticks. <laughs> you can't give him a coin. He's a ghost. Exactly. <laughs> so you think he yeah. was going to phone it in until... I, t- I totally think he was going to phone it in, but it's clear watching what? this that he really cares about the role because this is maybe his best performance. It's certainly up there. Yeah. 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 I mean, originally, uh, Panos wanted him to uh, play Jeremiah Sand, the right. cult leader. Yeah. And Cage said no. He really wanted to be Red. Um, and so, yeah, whenever he offered him Red like a year or two later, uh, Cage, Cage took it. But still, he might not have seen Beyond the Black Rainbow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, that, I'm really glad that he switched not only for his performance, but the guy who does Jeremiah Sand is incredible. Yeah. Li- yeah. Linus Roche, um, yeah, from uh, a lawyer on Law and Order and some other stuff. He was Thomas Wayne in one scene of Batman Begins. Oh, was that him? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that he makes he sense. read the script and had no idea what the fuck was going on, and then they told him <laughs> to watch uh, Cosmato's first movie, and then he watched it, and then the script made total sense, and he realized, okay, he was in this. I'm in. He was in. Yeah, he got it completely. And when they say that the film is like the script, I mean, the first, we'll get into the opening line of this film, but it's the same. Like, it's the same dumb knock-knock joke. Uh Like, I can't imagine reading that script going, yeah, no, I'll give this another uh, 60 pages or however long it is. (laughs) But Cage was on board. And and if you look at his other two films before and after this, the the film before it was 211 or... which is uh, not a prequel to the Michael Pena, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal movie about the World Trade Center. <laughs> right. But is instead, 211 is the police code for a robbery. Uh, it's a film by Momentum Pictures. It also has Weston Cage in it. Uh, oh. shot in Bulgaria and made $1 million in the box office. And, and this, then after well, this would be Between the Two Worlds. Or Between Two Worlds, which I also haven't seen. Well, mm-hmm. speaking of yeah, this even heard of movie, that. Mandy did pretty badly uh it lost money and it was pretty uh lukewarm reception from critics right is that correct yeah well there's some, yeah, there some six million dollars yeah it cost six million dollars it made 1.4 at the box office Ooh. but apparently it received according to the commentary or the uh, making of track on the blu-ray a four minute standing ovation at con yeah, that yeah, but they'll they'll give a standing ovation to anything there. Yeah, that's true. They they would give a standing ovation to a Michael Bay movie if they'd give a standing ovation to a ninety minute movie of Gaspar Noe taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they really. Um, I think they promoted the VOD release a lot more than they promoted mm. the theatrical release. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it was limited theater. Yeah. Uh, unlike, I mean, I think. Pigs and have a much wider release. But it's the become a cult cinema- classic already. Yeah. And I feel like it's if it hasn't made its movie back by now, money back by now, it definitely will. But the Cinema 21 staff 
didn't know what it was, and they were surprised that the first show sold out. They were asking <laughs> as we went in, and then as we came out, like, why are you here to see this? Because they didn't, they, it was, it totally blindsided them that there was going to be uh, an, an avid interest in the, in the That's film. amazing. Cage had a reputation at the time for, you know, moviegoers, the general right. moviegoers or cineasts. Whatever you had an image of what Cage was, and this is the movie that that really turned everything around for him and kind of looped right. him back to what he was at the beginning of his career before The Rock, for sure. And I've or, I've been a champion. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say. I mean, or at least it, like the other name film, which would be nice to pairing with it, Joe, Joe and Mandy. Even though they both lost money, I mean, they're both phenomenal. Um, performances. Maybe mm-hmm. you just need to get them in a beard and like some lumberjack gear. <laughs> Have them kill some trees to get them. Well, I've, I've think... been a big fan of Cage since I was a kid, and I have always had other people my age kind of, you know, poking fun at him when I tell people that, being like, oh, he's the worst actor that's ever lived just because, you know, they probably heard their parents say that or whatever. But definitely mm-hmm. after Mandy, I have seen a huge shift in uh, general audiences, especially people my age actually realizing that he is in my well in my opinion the greatest actor that's ever lived and probably ever will live (laughs) because this is just an amazing performance it makes the movie there is no movie without him yeah i think there's a real difference now because cage is working with people who grew up on his movies and particularly his early weirder performances and so now someone like cosmatos can really appreciate what Cage is bringing to the film as opposed to working with older directors who just know him from his his previous, uh, from the... Who who are watching him on The Rock and thinking, (laughs) oh, yeah, yeah, why don't you come do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, Yeah, with that $6 million, they shot in Belgium, even though it's supposed to be the the Pacific Northwest, and I have a theory that it's Oregon that I'll come into from a deleted scene. Uh It's 100% Oregon. and the home that they made, uh, that the Mandy and Red live in, was made from scratch. Really? Yeah. What? So, so cool. Yeah. One of the scenes that they deleted was them cooking sausages, and Nick Cage tells another joke. Uh, Red the hobo joke. joke in the kitchen. And, Classic yeah, scene. And they're looking, and they're looking for <laughs> uh, plates to put the sausages on, and they don't. There's no plates in the house because it's all like a model house. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They thought there would be plates, but the, the set guys didn't actually put them in the cupboards. <laughs> So they, they, it's one of the blooper reels is that they open up the, they just start looking around. It's empty. <laughs> That's amazing. Empty cupboards. That's hilarious. So the the woman who plays um, Mandy, what's her name? Andrea Riceboro. So uh, th- this is weird because last week we had the first two movies of the Coen Brothers, of which Nicolas Cage appeared in the second one, and then this week same with Cosmatos. She appeared. In Possessor, which is the second feature film of Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son. So uh, mm-hmm. there's a bit of passing of the torch there of some kind. I really got to watch Possessor. Yeah. Have either of you seen Possessor? No. Yeah, I saw it. Not a date movie. Um, Not a date movie. No. I I didn't... Uh, I can see why other people like it. I didn't really like it. I don't... Uh, I'm skeptical of of Cronenberg's kid, just generally speaking. <laughs> okay, as a filmmaker, yeah, right, we, being we, raised we don't, by Cronenberg, we don't know if he's like some weird test tube, right? Or he, <laughs> he popped out of he's... somebody who was getting rid of their anxiety. I don't know how he came about. But... Yeah, 
Both well, of his movies feel like they're trying to recreate uh, stuff that his dad did, but it feels like an aesthetic concern where one of the really awesome things about Cronenberg uh, for me is that um, his movies are so deeply thought out and philosophical and there's so much going on beyond the the crazy stuff that you're seeing on right. screen. Whereas uh, Cosmatos feels a lot more like an heir to Cronenberg than, than Brandon Cronenberg. Oh, especially with the Black Rainbow movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think Mandy is partially responsible for, I think we've seen a revamp in these psych- this genre of psychedelic horror the past few years. And I think Mandy and Annihilation, Definitely. too, are both... Wait a second. Yeah. Shut up. Are really responsible for this, because there's been, there's been a million of them in the past couple of years. Mostly cheap knockoffs, but some of them are pretty good, like uh, Color Out of Space and a new one that just came yeah. out a couple months ago, In the Earth by Ben Wheatley, which is really good. You guys should check that out. Oh, I haven't... Yeah, I haven't seen that one. It's it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's one of my favorite genres. I love Gaspar Noe. His horror movies are excellent, and yeah, I just... I really feel like Mandy is is the best one. It's like the pinnacle of this bizarre subgenre. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, uh, Thomas and Jack, you are both familiar with the deleted scenes? Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to know what they are. Deleted scene connoisseur here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you want to get into them whenever we go through the plot, and I can tell you where they would come in based sure. off the script. Well, I mean the the plot is is uh, is pretty simple. It's it's a formerly troubled man and a a damaged woman living an idyllic life in the woods. Well, that's the thing. That's a, the thing. Yeah. Is it's a plot that you've heard a million yeah, times then, before. And then a cult gets a the cult leader gets a boner for for Mandy and uh kidnaps her and leaves Red for dead. Uh kills her, doesn't kidnap her, kills her. Uh and then Red survives and is out for revenge. That's right. And the opening quote is I Joe Bob Briggs said it was from King Crimson, but it, no, it, it's, it's from not. Douglas Roberts, who was a man convicted of kidnapping, robbery, and murder, and he was executed by lethal injection in 2005. What? And the "When yeah, I Die, Texas. Bury Me Deep" thing was his last words. Wow! So it, it is a it is <laughs> yeah. a reach. It is a deep reference. Wow! wow. <laughs> well, it's a well, there's it's a deep reference that it, it just kind of feels like it's hanging because uh, doing a little research into uh, Douglas Roberts, uh, he uh, was whacked out on drugs in San Antonio, like robbed a liquor store, robbed I'm not a liquor store, like a Seven Eleven or some convenience store. I don't As know, maybe like Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona <laughs> <laughs> with drugs and like uh, abducted somebody um, who was driving and so, and I think killed them. Yeah, it was like an uh, old while dude, I was doing I think. so. And he was unrepentant. I mean, he he, he basically said like, look, I'm not going to get off uh, solitary confinement. 23 hours a day sucks. Uh, kill me and I'll go to heaven. Yeah. And so the state of Texas put a needle in his arm and killed him. In 2005. So it's a weird quote to have. You're right. Like, it, it's one of those things that might relate to something else, but doesn't quite. But does set the tone for the movie, even yeah. if you do not know that background behind it. I um, never, I just assumed that that was something he wrote or something. And if he had I, just never, written it, it would be amazing, right? Yeah, like, it I, really yeah. sets up, okay, I'm going to listen to a metal motherfucking movie. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just assumed it was uh, lyrics from a heavy metal song. Yeah, it seems no, like it yeah, is. Yeah, it seems like it should be. Well, maybe it is by now. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh no, King Crimson comes in with the Starless uh song that they play so over good. the opening. Incredible. So they have song. six minutes without dialogue. Yeah. Um very much but so. Starless is off the album Red. What? Ooh, Connection. What? <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, this movie got me into King Crimson. Um yeah, in the yeah. Court of the Crimson King, one of my favorite albums. So it's gotten you into acid. It's got you into King Crimson. Right. Um, this movie is basically a gateway drug for, for young me or younger me. <laughs> <laughs> I very much feel like that's part of the intent is to like show you this world of stuff that he that Cosmatost is basically in. Uh, mothers in the eighties. Hide your Dungeon and Dragons books. Hide <laughs> from your children. Front your treasure trolls with their their uh, you wish upon their their little diamond star. Uh, all this is a gateway to Satanism, especially nineteen eighty three. Oh, for sure. Uh, Beta Max version of Mandy. Yes. <laughs> Do not let your kids watch this. Well, no. speaking of D and D, there's a great bookstore in Vancouver, Washington. Not to get too off track, but uh, Sci-Fi Books, aka Interstellar Overdrive, on Hazeldale Avenue. Shout out! Go give them a visit. Um, they have stacks and stacks of these insane sci-fi fantasy books with these crazy fonts and these crazy covers, and that is something I've always been interested in since I was young enough to read is these bizarre old paperbacks that seem like they come out of nowhere with these crazy covers and uh just these insane worlds that are created when you're reading this book that disappear mm-hmm. when you're done with it and this movie takes that concept with the fictional author Lenora Tor and the Seeker of the Serpent's Eye and all that shit connecting vaguely with Red's journey it takes it to an extreme that I didn't even know existed before I watched this is like, <laughs> it's incredible. It's like my aesthetic. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, it's amazing that he's able to take, and especially like the end, which we'll eventually talk about, but the background there being mm-hmm. like a sci fi fantasy background. It's amazing that this movie looks like if you just did screen captures through a lot of it, or like when the um, biker gang is on the hill right before they come into the house. Yes. It looks like either covers of movies you've seen right. uh, on VHS or covers of books you might have seen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. One of my notes um, was er- almost every frame in this movie uh, could be taken and made into an album cover. Of some kind. Yeah. Not all of them metal. Some of them yeah. could be uh, indie or folk. Uh, <laughs> probably a few rap. Maybe some hardcore rap when they get to the uh, the uh, Cenobites. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, beautifully designed movie. Uh, the production design for $6 million is mind-blowing. Yeah. I, if you gave me yeah, $6 million, I would Especially because Cage be might have been this. some of that million, right? You would think. You yeah. Would hope. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what he got paid for, for making it. Well... Um, just in the interest of getting to some deleted scenes, um, that in that opening six minutes of Starless, uh, which you know later Mandy's going to ask about planets and stars, so there's another connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cage is chopping down a uh, tree, and the and the script is with an axe, and he kicks the tree. Uh, I think that they had to age him up a little bit because originally, um, I think Panos wanted a younger. Yeah, 40-year-old, uh, I think. So if you think about that, like some 18, 22, maybe even 26-year-old at the oldest person doing this, it shifts the script a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's interesting that you – and and obviously you have you guys have read the script. Um, I don't know if he talks about it in the script. Um, I've read some other books about 
histories of the Northwest and stuff, and the type of lumberjack, he would be like a specialist. They're like flying up to to mm-hmm. the top of a mountain yeah. to create the infrastructure to to cut uh, to to clear cut that mountain. That's like incredibly dangerous. Yeah, sophisticated, advanced lumber jacking. Yeah, living as we do in the Pacific Northwest, we know that it is a very dangerous job with a lot of mortality. Yeah, and it's, yeah, especially in eighty three, like they're the first people in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when he's flying out in that helicopter, a crewman, uh, according to the script. Busts out a cooler of beer and starts handing out the cans. The men crack their beers and drink heavily. But in the movie, it's just the guy riding with them in the helicopter and it offers Cage a beer. So you could see kind of like how they went from maybe a larger idea of the script to a smaller scene well, yeah. throughout this. Where Re- they reading, doing their cuts and edits. Reading the script that you sent, uh, one of the things I've always loved about the movie is how economically they explain Red and Mandy's characters um, because in the script, there's also scenes where she is asking him, you never talk about. Oh, yeah. There's did. this terrible scene where he's what he's like chopping wood and she's like, you never told me about your past. And he's like, I don't want to talk about and it. And she, she has a scar in the movie and it's never really explained. But giving her uh, anxiety that she experiences when right. he mentions maybe moving. Um, and one of her, her eyes is bigger than the other one, one of her pupils. And th- they explain Cage's background so eloquently in the movie where it's in the helicopter and the guy just holds up the beer and he just kind of half shakes his head, looks out and smokes a cigarette. That's it. That's all you need to know. So badass. Um, So a lot of the stuff in the script, as sometimes happens, you know, when an actor gets on stage, they could do, they could, they could express more by acting instead of saying the words in the script. Yeah. And I think that's what they ended up with. But yeah, that you don't need to know all that. You kind of do know that just by watching the story. You don't need for them sure. to talk yeah, about and it. And in a way, for as long as if you're going to watch a Nicolas Cage movie with him fighting with chainsaws or having <laughs> the screaming attack that he has in the bathroom, you're confused by the first part of this film, maybe, especially if you haven't seen Beyond the Black Rainbow, because it takes a while. Like, it takes its time uh, appropriately. Um, and yeah, cutting from the script, things like he uh, read like uh, after the Reagan speech, like uh, switches through the radio a little bit and listens to some ads, not for Cheddar Goblin, but for some other stuff. Like it's it, you don't need all that. Right. So in the editing room floor or as they were shooting and as the uh, six million dollar budget got tighter and tighter, it seems yeah. like that movie got better and better. Well, that, yes. then there's a scene in the script. I don't know if they shot it with the sheriff. Where that's he, Well, he that's is, the deleted scene. They do. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to get one. to. Because oh, it's, it's it's a. It is, scene in the the, script. it is so fucking terribly written. And that that's the thing is it's a it's a pretty good scene. The I would recommend watching it. The actual deleted no. scene itself is <laughs> Nope. <laughs> it's okay. Because the sheriff They'll watch it, but it's bad and it should never have been seen never been filmed. <laughs> no, it shouldn't have been in the movie. It a hundred percent should not have been in the movie. It's totally out of place. But comparing, I think, just in my opinion, page to screen uh, the sheriff has like this Russian accent. He's like this weird, really creepy <laughs> dude. And yeah. then the gas, uh, the gas thing when he's filling up the gas, it stops at six six six, and Cage that is like fun. laughing the whole time, and it's fun. It's not like it is. And he in the like script. clenches his hand. But the two things that you learn there in that scene in the script and in uh, the movie, which what doesn't add much, is that Red was an alcoholic, and the the cop calls Mandy a slut. Yeah. And you already get all that in the the rest of the movie without any dialogue. Yeah, it's totally and unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Yeah, it's it's completely unnecessary. 
So yeah, it's good that they cut it. Um, yeah. But that is, uh, they cover that just by two things. One, having uh, read uh, Shake His Head when he was offered the beer. And then second, he, where he gets his vodka bottle from later. Yeah. 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 The bathroom. The secret, the secret vodka. It's less, it's less secret in the actual movie than in the script. I think it's a, under a floorboard in the script, isn't it? Uh, uh, he has to like, take a panel out yeah, yeah, to get to it. Interesting. Um, what's cool about the – so you get this title. You don't get Mandy until what, an, an hour and ten minutes in? Uh, <laughs> but you get this the Shadow Mountains, 1983 AD. So you know when you're taking – it's taking place in 1983. It's this sparkly blue and white cursive kind of labyrinth, uh, a labyrinth um, David Bowie. Uh-huh. Kind of font, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you'll get the Children of the New Dawn. Remember, you need to like kind of have another chapter break, right? right. Like a, uh, to go some to shift perspective. It's like flipping uh, um, flipping an album to the other side. If it's a uh, ooh, it's a, that's good. If it's a four sided album, they just needed one more title. Uh-huh. And it could have been four sides <laughs> to a double album, <laughs> a double rock. Well, the last album. one was a really big record player and a huge <laughs> record. <laughs> What's also cool is that he hasn't give um, Panos doesn't give himself uh, editor or directed by credits during that sequ- during the opening titles uh, during the opening credits. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. So you know why? I mean, you know, it's like it says written by and it gives him and uh, the other dude. But like, wh- like, why do you need to say that? Yeah, you'll yeah. figure it out, or you don't <laughs> care one or the other, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he he knew what he was doing. Well, we got to mention the late uh, Johan Johansson, the great composer. I believe he won an Oscar for the Theory of Everything score, which is also really good. Um, this is probably the best movie score ever, in my opinion. Yeah, he, it is. He, he it went, is he really went out doing his best work and, it's and re- just died. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. This was yeah. This was released posthumously, right? And that's why they dedicated to him or say yeah. thanks at the end, mm-hmm. the final credits. Amazing um, score, um, yeah. It, it has. It's just like every scene has, uh, and every character they have. You know, their different scores, but none of them are worse or better than any of the others, and they all flow together so well. Where most of the most of the movie is music, there mm-hmm. is uh, very little silence, and when there is, it's really effective because the score is so overbearing on the rest of the movie. Um, I can see why he yeah. talked about it in the script. I was surprised when listening to the soundtrack to see it's like over an hour long. Mm-hmm. So he he really did score, you know, more than half of the movie is is has active music going on, which is yes, seems yeah, especially if you take the six minutes out of uh, of the opening song, yeah, and then yeah. the and then the carpenters knock off amulet in the weeping maze <laughs> which is also a really good song that i just listen to sometimes because it's fun it's it's funny it's well written it's a good song honestly if i was back in 1983 and he released that i'd be like yeah i'll listen to this it's just like charlie manson's music it was pretty good okay <laughs> yeah a lot of charlie manson uh, parallels with jeremiah so okay here's something not to get too ahead of ourselves um if there's anything before this that we want to mention we still can but joe bob briggs shout out again mentioned that in jeremiah's amazing speech where him and mandy's faces are melding together which is the uh probably the scariest part of the movie i think um Uh uh he is not talking about like 
actual gods or anything. He's just talking about being rejected by music executives. By music executives. And you, you didn't get that yeah, the I, 12 I've times seen, you watched it. I've seen it 12 times, and I never got that until Joe Bob mentioned it. It's amazing, though. Yeah, yeah well, I don't know it, how the you scene is so entrancing. Yeah. You kind of lose track of what he's talking about. That was also a favorite subject of Manson's, was to talk about his rejection by the music industry. Totally. And his, uh, how it fed his, uh, his uh, insecurities and his, his anger. Right. I, I think that's the longest um, bit of dialogue monologues in the script is when he and Mandy are having that. Well, he's looking at her and talking at her, but um, as cult leaders tend to do, is a huge chunk of of dialogue. And Linus Roche, however his name is, he's amazing as this um, wannabe folk singer <laughs> who was rejected. Yeah. <laughs> used his onstage charisma to start some weird fucking cult that injects wasp venom in people's <laughs> necks. And his turning on the dime, like his volatility from going from being master to uh, being like um, a, a sycophant or yeah. uh, somebody begging for their life or begging for favors... Mm-hmm. It's pretty remarkable. His like, his he, ego yeah, is guy, so like, big and so fragile at the same time. Um, he just yeah. teeters the entire movie. And he said that the actor said uh, on set that he and Cage would not talk purposefully. Yeah, yeah. Just to keep building tension between the two of them. <laughs> That's what he said. Maybe Cage just didn't want to talk to him. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> it was mutual. No, that makes sense. So Joe um, Bob Briggs. Two- oh, sorry, Ryan. Go ahead. Oh, well, just... Uh, Something that I have been wondering about, and I wanted to get your guys' opinion on, um, is Mandy supposed to be attractive to the audience? That's fascinating because that actress is like a looks like a supermodel kind of, right? Like she has those nice angular features. Yeah, when she's when she's done up, and she's also very shapely, right? Uh Um, But I don't, but uh, the clothes that she wears help belie that, right? Like help, um, like uh, masquerade or hide some of it. Yeah. And she has that scar and the glasses that she wears, at least in the opening scene. Like it's, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've always thought that. I think she she's supposed to be desexed a little bit. They're they're kind of like each other's refuge because it's unspoken in the movie, uh, more literal in the script, but they're they're both kind of quote-unquote damaged people yeah and, and they kind of have their little paradise there and i think in the script she is described as someone you would like to hang with yeah <laughs> yeah that is Which great she does she looks like somebody that would be fun to hang out with and yeah I, I don't think it's necessarily uh-huh. trying to make her sexy or unsexy she's just uh a partner to cage's character and somebody that that he loves well, that that's yeah, the... I mean, it's not like the movie Monster, right? It's not like... Well, so there's there's several scenes that are very fixated on her, like when she's getting out of the water, water and yeah. at the fire. Like, he is obviously obsessed. Like, maybe it's a codependent relationship that they've built, but he's obsessed with her. And then the cult leader sees her and immediately becomes consumed by her. If it were like a... Uh, Charlize Theron in without any, you know, in her normal appearance, you would be like, oh, I understand why all these men need to I possess I know how she could have that haircut in Fast 9 and still be attractive. <laughs> uh, well, oh, that's, the, right, that's right. the biggest controversy of the movie, though, and the reason that a lot of people really don't like it is because I think people, especially my age, 
are sick of stories where it's a dude and a woman gets killed as an excuse for him to go kill a bunch of people. And I think that that's right. the reason that a lot of people don't like this. But really, having watched it so many times, I have realized that it is completely a... Not not necessarily parody, but almost a critique of that genre and of that trope. Because That's exactly... Is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, uh, no, Jack. Totally. You, should, you should finish your thought. Okay, well, um, pa- Panos Cosmatos said that uh, the villain was the male ego and all that stuff, and he's allergic to testosterone. <laughs> and I think that, like, funny shit like that, but really what he's trying to say is Mandy is this representation of this perfect, ethereal, otherworldly woman. And when you get those animated dream sequences later on, it's clear that Red thinks of her more as, like, this otherworldly healing presence that he has obviously Uh come to and stopped drinking and she you know has saved him from whatever and yeah i think the movie really goes far into being a a critique of that by showing that exploitation revenge super gory genre in its most extreme yeah i i personally feel like if she is not supposed to be attractive to the audience then we're seeing what you're talking about, this male ego run amok, actually in both Red and Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And they they are projecting onto her what you said, this this almost, uh, this like impossible vision, idealization of a woman. Yeah. And the loss of her, you know, her death for Red and her rejection for Jeremiah, that's what it's really about, is their is their drive to, to possess her. Yes. And that's a, it's totally about, it makes sense learning that he was inspired by the death of his mother and father, because this is totally a movie about how grief can just tear you apart and send you spiraling and just make you go insane. Mm. And I think it's really, Mm -hmm. although the people that red is killing, they all are terrible and they all 100% deserve it. Yes. And he spares Lucy, the pregnant woman. He hasn't completely lost himself. But yeah, it's it it's really hard to look at the parallels between the scene where we pan over and then slowly zoom in on the demons in the woods. We have that exact shot later, except we're slowly moving in on Red, who is standing shadowed the exact same way as those demon bikers were earlier. And, oh, fascinating! Um, yeah, it's it's really hard to look at that and be like, oh, this guy is objectively the hero who we're completely (laughs) rooting for when it's clear that he has just completely lost himself in madness at that point. Mm -hmm. Good point. That, um, one of the other, one of the movies weirdly that I, uh, in my own idea of what, what is going on with Red's backstory, one of the parallel movies that I thought of when, when rewatching Mandy this time was Unforgiven. Ooh. That, Red is a lot like Clint Eastwood's character in Unforgiven. And just as when uh, he decides to get back into the bounty hunting business in that movie, when Red loses Mandy, he lapses into his old ways, which is this um, violent... Starts drinking. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he starts drinking and taking drugs. He gets violent. He has this battle with supernatural forces. Like, maybe that's what he was doing before he met Mandy was some sort of supernatural like a demon hunter and, and something if like that your only anchor point on living a completely normal life is one other person then that is not a health you've not fully healed that's not a healthy way to live exactly yeah 
Interesting. Yeah, it is like Unforgiven because Unforgiven's the same way where he goes back and he gets revenge at the end and the people that he murders completely deserve it and have it coming, but is not a victory necessarily because he's completely yeah. lost himself. And with both characters, I think you're supposed to go along with them and then at some point near the ending, you're supposed to realize like, oh, wait, no, maybe this is too far. Maybe yeah. the violence itself is bad. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> maybe you're not the hero that uh, that I, I was suckered into thinking you were. Right. And in this one, it's more, I mean, Unforgiven, that scene where he goes back and shoots those dudes is totally harrowing and not really satisfying. But this movie takes that 80s exploitation revenge super gory thing to... I mean, the most extreme level, like, beyond extreme. (laughs) This is one of the goriest movies ever, probably, right? I don't know. Well, but the big difference, I think, there is that with the shootout um, in the bar and then uh, Unforgiven is that it's more realistic, right? Like, oh, people accidentally get shot. Some people Mm -hmm. don't get shot straight through and are dead, dead immediately. And in this, Nicolas Cage throws an axe. Yeah. And it goes (laughs) Yeah, when I say an axe, I don't, I mean, I guess we could talk about it, uh, like why he had that mold in the first place to be able to have his foundry, wherever that was in the house. Uh, yeah, it's pretty outlandish violence in this, which is what you're on board for by the time it comes around. And by yeah. the time the Mandy title card comes up that uh, grows in the red, uh, veiny. That got a standing right. ovation in the movie theater when I saw it. Just just the title card when it came up, yeah. Mandy. Oh, people were, like, were out of their chairs yeah. screaming. Yeah, that's amazing. It it, yeah, it it that forging the beast song that's playing while he's making that axe is the most over the top shit. It, uh, yeah, by yeah, that point so you're great. just on board. It's incredible. Yeah, and so, that adrenaline script, that's pumping when he's driving that car right after it cuts from the title card is like it's like Mad Max. At that point, uh-huh. yeah, it becomes, uh-huh. it becomes uh-huh. a yeah, second in the movie. script. They had him make the axe immediately after uh, he leaves the house before he goes to get his uh, crossbow. Oh, interesting. And so he gets the crossbow, and then he goes and uses the crossbow. And so it's it, by reframing it it's, or by moving those scenes around, you have a little nice breathing area mm-hmm. between him gearing up. And then actually using those those weapons. Plus, the I don't think the Cheddar Goblin commercial is in the script. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's not. It's not. Yeah. Uh, can I talk a little bit about Cheddar Goblin? One of my favorite things. <laughs> At length. Yes, please do. <laughs> okay. Well, Cheddar Goblin in the commercial uses one of my other favorite things, which is Fago. <laughs> yes. So the the vomit that's the right. Cheddar Goblin uh, vomits is made of macaroni and or mac and cheese. Pineapple Fago <laughs> and lemon jello pudding. Yes. To be able to get the consistency right. Wow. And apparently it smelled a little bit like vomit. <laughs> oh my God. Shocking. Those kids love it. And if you want, if you get the Blu ray DVD, you can watch the full or the, a fuller version of that commercial. Yeah. When it comes in. But it's directed by um, Casper Kelly, um, who was the guy who did Too Many Cooks. <gasps> wow. No way. No. That yes. is amazing. And the <laughs> and the puppet, the um, the cat puppet from Too Many Cooks, that puppeteer is the one running the puppet. No the way! Puppet what? Are you serious? That's incredible. Yes, that's fucking incredible. Wow. 
so uh, that puppeteer is Shane Morden, and he, they uh, asked uh, uh, Panos for $1,000 to help offset the cost of creating that puppet. Oh, and, my God. Uh, they were working on the demon makeup for your pretty face is going to hell uh, while uh-huh. also making the Cheddar Goblin uh, commercial. That all makes sense, yeah. That's incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Too many cooks. Classic. So, Easter egg, I don't know, you guys have probably caught this. Um, I don't know how many times you have all seen this. I know you've seen it a lot, Ken. So, okay, so giving that in the script, Mandy goes up to him and she's like, you never told me about that, your past and all that shit, which they cut out. In the movie, Jeremiah Sand uh, asks her at first, look at us, like, what do you see? And she says, I see the Reaper fast approaching. And later on, when he goes to Bill Duke's house, he says, I've come for the Reaper, which is the name of his crossbow. So that alone, that little connection, gives more backstory to uh, both of them and how much they know about each other than anything else you could write, I think. Wow, yeah. I didn't I, I didn't make that connection. I, I don't either. know if they're talking about the same thing. I think... I, mean, I think they. You could probably make a Galactus connection somewhere in there. Oh no, well. they're, well, because, they're not talking about the same thing. Why else would his crossbow be called the Reaper? That's totally yeah. intentional. And it also. So one thing that I told uh, Thomas after I, I watched uh, Mandy earlier in the week is um, this idea that maybe Red was some sort of supernatural hunter before his idyllic life in the Shadow Mountains. Right. When he goes to Bill Duke's house. Bill Duke asks him what he needs the Reaper for, and he says he's going hunting. And Bill Duke immediately knows that they're not talking about elk. Yeah, you know he's he knows that that Red is going hunting to kill some some person or some person like thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot more in the script that they help, they help cut down uh, oh, on okay. it, which is nice. One of those things was that Bill Duke's like uh, his character um, is shooting heroin. Um, yeah. That he at, like there's a needle and they ask him like what it is and he says he's diabetic. Okay. <laughs> so pass it off. And it, the crossbow isn't used. Uh, like it's a, hasn't been well kept and there's like more business. Like they go out to a different place to look at it. Okay. He's in a wheelchair. Like uh-huh. there's just, there's a lot, a lot more just small, small pieces to it. Yeah. They cut it down um, quite a bit. <clears throat> I just don't understand. Um, so I guess let's talk about the weapons then, if that's going to be the case, because well, okay, so we have a crossbow, which is an unusual weapon in, in, in a movie, right? Uh, he only has the two arrows, which is nice. Uh-huh. And he ends up, the other, like, the second one, he shoots the guy through the throat. And uh-huh. it's like, damn, like, I don't, I, I didn't win. Like, like, it wasn't just one, a one-shot kill. It wasn't, like, <laughs> the last bullet in the gun of Blood Simple. Right, right. Where she shoots and is able to hit him uh, and knock him and knock out uh, Emmett Walsh. Um, so, okay, so crossbows are pretty rare in movies, um themselves there's a have you guys seen the 1984 movie a breed apart with Rutger howard no 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 the guy from blind fury and blade runner yeah okay well anyway he's like he has he has a crossbow and he he and kathleen turner help protect some eagle eggs on an island um mad dog morgan uh morgan with uh dennis hopper yeah the australian movie is that the australian movie Uh, yeah he was whacked out of his skull when he made that wasn't he <laughs> yeah, a bizarre uh, well, movie. Also, the yeah, there was that it was that Australian director as well who made the Howling Two and the Howling Three and the Return of Captain Invisible. <laughs> the Return of Captain Invisible, starring Alan Arkins, Christopher Lee, 
<laughs> and that song's from the Rocky Horror Picture Show creator, uh, Richard O'Brien, uh, a guy named uh, Felipe Mora. I bet Panos um, Cosmatos has seen that movie and owns a copy of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably owns so the a crossbow. So a crossbow's a little kind of a weird thing for a weapon to pick up, right? Like... Uh, I, there's a, I don't believe there's any supernaturalness in this movie. I think everything is just LSD based. So maybe that's where we're going to depart way, like part ways. Like it's not like silver tipped uh, crossbow arrows. It's all what? just uh, you. You think there's supernatural stuff here? Wait, but okay, because that this is what I was going to bring up because this is where I disagreed with Joe Bob Briggs. Shout out. Um, he said that what we're getting deeper into as the movie goes along is Red's psyche deteriorating, which I do agree with, but that doesn't explain away the demon biker gang, which shows up before Red has uh, gotten on or off the wagon. Yeah, they, yeah they, they show how up, do you explain the short of brackets if there's no... Yeah, there, there are no demons in this. There is a there is a way of summoning people who are whacked out on LSD. <laughs> that is the, the the special horn, and then there's the blade that they use uh, on um, Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brother Swan says like I have it right here. This is the tainted blade of the Pell Knight, straight from the abyssal layer. Which we can agree, yeah. they're just making shit up at that point, right? <laughs> yes, that's and that's why I think the Reaper is just the name of a oh, crossbow no. that he owns, um, and that makes perfect sense in this film. No, I okay. think there's definitely a supernatural. My yeah. galaxy brain thought is that when the last shot of the film pans up to the sky, yes. That's the clue that you've been on a different planet. This whole movie's taking place with Reagan in an alternate universe <laughs> um, where Earth is a, is a much I, different place. Okay, so we could jump there because I think that that is also I think that that is Mandy's imagination. Like yeah. I think this movie it's, could easily be Jupiter, right? all Mandy's Isn't it uh, drawings and and a novelization of what's going on. Just and it is one of and, the planets is Jupiter. Ken. Well, I I thought it was at. Um, when she is reading the Lenora Tor novel, uh, the paragraph that she reads is very specific about the volcanic mm-hmm. rocks jutting out and the, the warlock reaching into the, the serpent's eye that was strange and eternal and the, the blood red suns, plural, overhead. Yeah. And I really thought that that whole ending is just an amalgamation of all that stuff coming together in either in red's mind or in reality, who knows? Well, he's pretty far gone by the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's a, there's definitely a reading that says like he, his mind has deteriorated to the point where he is living in this Mandy authored fantasy universe because of all the acid. But you're saying before all that, how were the bikers able to show up there? I yeah. think I think when Jeremiah Sand is talking about those magical objects, those are magical objects. <laughs> I, oh, 100%. A, I, 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 no, 0%. The Horn of Abrachis no, is a magical what? object to summon Z- demons. Maybe, maybe with a margin of error of 1%. The, 0%. Okay, the, and they, the they even talk about having to give the as a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, that kid so that the demons will work for them. It's like very classical fantasy tropes playing out. I think that those bikers are whacked out on the acid that they're on. The movie's showing you... No, but uh, even if you're whacked out beyond belief on any kind of drug, there is no way, as a person, you could live, you know, with uh, iron bolts strapped to every inch of you. 
like constantly or like wearing these insane outfits you, that are glued uh, okay. to you. I there's you no know way. I watched I watched eight millimeter and <laughs> you have to like be able to take that take that gear off and just hang out with your mom and so But they don't when, when they're hanging out, they're still wearing it. I know, that's what I'm saying. That's why he convinced me, is because I watched the movie 8mm. Oh, okay. When that's he it. shoots the biker in the throat, yes. and the biker pulls the arrow out, and uh-huh. all of this gore falls out <laughs> uh-huh. of his throat, uh-huh. and then he's just still trucking, that's just acid power? That's yeah, keeping that biker That's the movie where Nicolas Cage throws an axe that he, melt, he, he made like four hours earlier uh, through the air, and Buffy the Vampire opening credits style... And hit somebody in the head because he <laughs> is a demon slayer in a fantasy world. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, so I, if you I think... if you accept that as the premise, no, no, no. everything this makes is my sense. thought. This is my thought. <laughs> he he was going to make that axe for Shark Tank because he's a lumberjack, <laughs> and so he had that sitting there. He's like, you know what? I bet this can slay some bikers instead. That or he made that Eric Estrada joke at the very beginning. <laughs> uh-huh. He's axe cop. Oh, oh my god. He 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 was saying that he was Eric Estrada. He's the really chips guy. It all goes back to Wicker Man. Like, yes. <laughs> I see. So I think the long and short of it is we're discussing it in a pretty literal manner and it even on the surface level, it doesn't really make any sense and it's not really supposed to. There's the the radio tower guy, the chemist that can open his mouth and look at the sky and then like use the radio tower powers to see where anything is. And then there's the tiger then, that knows when mm-hmm. the acid is working or if the person standing there is safe to trust or both. And, and all of these, it is an implausible movie. And I agree. We are getting to a level that I don't think, I don't think the movie entertains these readings of it. Like, I don't think it necessarily wants you to get into all this stuff, right? but all of those tropes are fantasy the acid guy is a wizard that lives in a tower and makes magical potions. 100%. And is psychic and linked with his uh, tiger, who's his uh, familiar. Like, there's all this. Yeah, and I think maybe similar to the previous film, you have... I mean, so in this, you have your kind of uh, hippie Christian um, cult. Mm-hmm. And in the other one, you have your new age cult. And in both of them, you've uh, created a bit of a monster... Mm-hmm. This one being uh, Red, Nicolas Cage's character. Uh, and at the end of the movie, you set them off somewhere. You're not quite sure where they're going to go. Yeah. 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 And that's the weird thing about Panos Cosmatos saying that he would be willing to make a sequel to this because he has ideas for it. He talked in an interview about having an idea for a movie where Red Miller is trying to get through a deteriorating city after the apocalypse that's filled with neo-nazis and having to fight them off sure i'm there for and, it i love it and, and i think it would work <laughs> yeah, right yeah <laughs> because essentially at the end escape, of this movie the world New York. as we know it yeah. has ended yeah trying to make literal sense of this movie um it's so experiential you just you have to either give yourself over to it because the more you start trying to put stuff together it's like the the first movie he made uh, the more you try and make those associations that you're used to in movies, um, right. you just get frustrated. But the the tone right. and uh, the confidence in which the movie is made, if you just give yourself into and, it, it's it's a great experience. And, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I would say somehow, echoing that, I would say somehow, and this is a hot take, but uh, better than Wild at Heart, it'd be able to do that. 
Yes. I think yeah. in both of those movies, you just kind of, you have jumps. Yeah. And you, you know the tropes, and it kind of fills itself in for you. And it's not like, when we say it doesn't make sense, it's not that it doesn't, like, flow. The problem is, is that there's uh, a lot more that could be happening or isn't defined by the film itself, feeling like it needs to explain how literal to take different portions right. of itself. Because yeah. it's a film. It's an experience. Like a Coen Brothers film is an experience. You shouldn't get tripped up uh, that a camera goes over a drunk person on a bar yeah. as it's uh, panning across. Like, no, that's that's yeah. what you want to watch. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And I... um. Um, the only thing I would take exception to what you were saying, Ken, is I just enjoy um, the open-endedness of both of these films and the ability to try and figure out some kind of backstory, something like that, that would make it make sense. But uh, but I agree 100% that it's not uh, like a Lynch film. It's, it's not meant to be taken literally. Um, and it is all about the, the emotional, uh, psychotropic experience. Right. Of seeing it um, much more so than it than what I'm what I'm talking about, which is uh, fun to think about, but is is not uh, part of. It doesn't need to to make sense in in any sort of linear fashion to be yeah, enjoyable for sure. Yeah, there's there's shit like when he's writing the one of the demons uh, uh, little uh, four wheeler things. The way he finds the facility is it literally just gets stuck in the mud. And he turns and he looks and then he climbs over the hill and finds it the next day when he wakes up. And it's like yeah. it's stuff like that. It's like <laughs> how did, eh. literally on an all terrain vehicle and it, it gets, gets stuck. stuck in a terrain. Right. <laughs> but I, yeah, you just go with it. Okay. It's like, yeah, he's on this quest that is just like meant to happen. He just has to get his revenge. Yeah. 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 Or they rename it to like a mostly terrain vehicle. <laughs> a most terrain vehicle. An MTV? <laughs> yes. I want my MTV. <laughs> <laughs> um, the scene with yeah. Bill Duke Carruthers, his his old buddy, is as some of like my favorite dialogue writing ever. It's just amazing. It's really short, but uh, the things that they say to each other are just so bizarre. They have this this back and forth that does not sound like a real conversation you would ever hear, but yeah, it's just it's just something that perfectly it's great movie. fits in. Yeah, they give yeah. great movie dialogue. And I especially like the last line. It's a little bit like um, uh, Fucked from Birth being uh, FFB uh, for uh, um, Kiss of Death, where he's like, my initials are bad. Balls, attitude, direction. <laughs> <laughs> and then Caruso's like, well, mine might be fucked from birth. Uh, and, and Nicolas Cage says something like, that's not very positive. Right. <laughs> because the end of the, their dialogue with Carruthers, uh, uh, Red and Carruthers is, uh, your odds aren't good and you'll probably die. And then Nick Cage's character, Red, says, don't be negative. <laughs> so and that's great. in the script. <laughs> so, so great. Going way back uh, to uh, Ryan and uh, Jack talking about uh, a woman needing to be rescued or revenged. I think something that the dialogue does that occurred to me uh, listening to you speak is that it is, it's as bad as it is because it helps make uh, him, it shows their, their love and the, uh, 
the routineness, kind of their lives in this new life that they have. Uh-huh. And it's not trying to draw too much attention to itself. It's right. not like she's a manic pixie girl, whatever that phrase is, right, yeah. right. that saved him. Instead, like when he gives the worst knock knock jokes, or they <laughs> cut the joke about the hobo that slept underneath the uh, <laughs> the tanker, the gas tanker. Is that the joke? Yeah, because he wants to wake like up oily. He wants. Yes, <laughs> I think that was better than the Eric Estrada joke. No, though. it's not. All right, Eric well, Estrada from Chips. Joke. It's a classic. He sells yeah. it. Yeah. He sells it well. It's a classic. I wish they had used that instead of the joke that they used that kind of fell dead in um, Left Behind. The stewardesses are talking about. And they're laughing. Oh, he's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Steel so Captain Steel's so funny. Anyhow, um, but yeah, I think that what that helps do is uh, make it like these are people that you want to hang out with, like the script says. Yeah. As opposed mm-hmm. to people who are superheroes or like a cutesy rom-com couple yeah uh and in doing so whenever she dies it's a lot more tragic yeah 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 for sure now the other thing that's really cool that they did uh between the script and shooting is that they cut out originally the uh heavyset kid who's offered as a sacrifice to the bikers he has a twin isn't offered isn't oh he has the twin that's right they're called the twins and his twin is left to watch cage whenever he's got the bob wire around him okay and instead he goes inside and he watches cheddar goblin or something on tv and he's watching an episode of three's company Oh, is it Three's Company? <laughs> his brothers is watching Price is Right. But I think if you watch the uh, deleted scene, it's American Gladiators. Both good choices. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, the twin uh, gets killed by Cage with like, some garden shears. Oh, okay. So Cage starts killing then yeah. in the script. Before he drinks. And I think it's a much smarter thing to leave all that. Let him have his grief. Oh, for sure. And then and then go to Carruthers for the... Uh, the slayer and then build his axe and then do that yeah right. well and that that leads to the uh mentioning the bathroom scene which is like such an amazing performance by cage so to see a character transform so completely in a one shot in a single room is just like that scene is so so intense and when he leaves you're ready for him to go murder everyone yeah you know yeah and Ken, I'm I'm curious. You you have a little bit more experience than the rest of us on this earth. Uh, why would anybody put carpet in their bathroom? <laughs> uh, it's a '80s aesthetic. I yeah, believe. it's like an '80s like more rural thing, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, it just seems unhygienic. All right. So it's fun fact. So the house I grew it's up dangerous, in, like in the early '80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's exactly it was, it was like built the in the '70s, movie, right? Uh, had two bathrooms. Both bathrooms had carpet. I don't know. Was living in Rogue River in the woods in that big uh, wooden house, was it like the house in Mandy? It was a lot like that. And there was a cult nearby, too. Yeah, that's a long... That's a different story, though. Right. Uh, there were lots Shout of out. people uh, growing <clears throat> marijuana illegally in the BLM land, and they weren't quite Cenobites on ATVs, but there was some... Uh, Right. There's some, uh, well, marijuana is a gateway drug to becoming one of those things. So, okay, they might be there now. <laughs> and that's that's the thing with the deleted or the the cut scene with Carruthers is him talking about giving more context to that story because the backstory you get to the black skulls as he calls them is super short and it, it's super open ended. 
but in the deleted scene, and I believe in the script too, he talks about how the LSD gave them communication to some sort of dark dimension, and that's stuff that you don't really need, because it's left up to your imagination, or it's implied. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's apparent. Yeah. Right. It's, it's they're, <laughs> because they're not demons, they're humans. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, well, I love the open-endedness of the, the screen, of the, the, the script as shot, uh, and as presented, and I... With both movies, like, I almost don't, I have very little desire to learn more about Panos Cosmatos as much as I like him as a director, because it's so, the work is just so unique. It's like, why, it's all, it's all there, whatever, Any, anything anything uh, that's part of his personality that's not in the movies would almost be a, a letdown for me to find out about. Right. Yeah. That's funny you should say that because uh, Thomas, one of your many podcast uh, puns, was a uh, David Lynch Merrill Street podcast called uh, Merrill Lynch. And <laughs> Andy, no, Andy and I were like, oh, we should totally do this because we will just like pick movies that came out the same year, Lynch and Streep, and we'll compare them. Uh, but the more I thought about it, exactly what Ryan's saying, I actually don't want to know more about David Lynch and like do research on the making of the movies. Really? Then I already know because I just want to know him through his movies. And right. knowing too much is like knowing how the sausage is made. And sometimes I just I just want the sausage. I'm a vegetarian, but yeah. that's yeah. yeah, exactly. Vegetarian. And you don't sausage. have any plates in your house, but yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, any final what? thoughts on Mandy, guys? We, um, we didn't go through. The, we didn't even talk about the chainsaw fight. How can we have oh, final yeah. thoughts? Well, about how the about the, fight? the fight scenes? Because they're very clearly choreographed, but they're yeah, still they had super one night to shoot. Yeah, because of their budget, they only had one night to shoot the chainsaw scene, and they only had one night to shoot the uh, scratch, the leader of the uh, Black Riders, the one who gets shot through the throat, the mm-hmm. arrow. They only had one night to shoot with the flaming car in the background. They only had <laughs> right. one night to shoot that as well. Wow. So that was wow. uh, a condensed schedule. They worked and really hard great. on those. Like, I, you, I, I don't know if you gave this guy 10 million, I'm sorry, 10 times as much, like a $60 million budget and had him do a Doctor Strange or uh, other movie if, if it would ever if it ever be any good. Maybe maybe like an um, Alan Moore swamp thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, where it's yeah. real, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just don't thing. know. Well, I, I think it would be just like Twin Peaks season three, where you don't really notice it costs a hundred million dollars until you're in the fireman's white lodge, and it, this whole new construction of a totally different world. Right. You know. Right. I think he I, knows. I, I he, he knows how to use his money to get the most bang. No, yeah, I hope he doesn't get swept up by a Disney. I hope he stays making these bizarre smaller movies so uh one thing we didn't mention um elijah wood the producer uh actually sought out cosmatos to work with him yeah because uh black rainbow did not make much at all it didn't make anything right um but he elijah wood really likes horror and has his production company and and that's how the movie got started so kudos to frodo Good job, yeah buddy. yeah he's great uh and the final scene where and I don't know, guys. This happens in two uh, films. Is this a trope or is this a real thing? I don't, I don't know. Can you crush somebody's head with your hands? Like, can you kill mm-hmm. them by just crushing, like, with your with your hands? Uh, I don't think an average person has enough. Can I have pretty strong force. hands? Like, I have kind of like workman <laughs> hands. Um, I, I could do it. I don't think yourself. anyone else. Okay. Has. 
If it was like a, a plastic doll's head, I think I, I have a fighting chance. Oh, okay, honestly, I probably I just don't want to accidentally do head. it. Is what I'm saying. I just don't want to <laughs> crush somebody's head by accident. If uh, I don't know, I was trying to help them up or something. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, in that final scene, what's not in the script <laughs> is the line that Red gives to the uh, cult leader, uh, the cult leader who offers to flate him to spare his life. Um, he says, a psychic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. I'm swimming. Uh-huh. And then later he'll say, I am your god. Um, but that's not in the script, which I thought was pretty interesting. I wonder if that was improvised by Cage. Not improvised meaning like Cage came with that prepared to add into the script. Right. Yeah, yeah. Something that was late. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Like, this guy's talking to me a lot. Maybe I should say something back to him at one point. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, with his voice there, it is exactly the sort of distortion and manipulation in um, in his voice that the uh, Black Skulls had earlier. And after he crushes Jeremiah's head and burns down the church, somehow just dropping his Zippo, the whole thing goes up in flames. Yeah. It's cool. That's how it works. And that shot of him with the, the, the fire in front of him, where it's his, his back turned to the camera, is an exact parallel to the uh, leader of the Black Skulls earlier, standing in front of the flaming cars. Ah. Oh, interesting. There is something undeniably sexual about his reaction after he crushes Jeremiah's head. Yeah, um, totally. A bit disturbing, but that's the point he's Kind of funny, to. too. Where he <laughs> chopped off the one lady's head, he crushed his head. Uh, he's completely covered in blood. Yeah, um, he's he's barely even human. He's about as human as the uh, the Cenobite bike gang. Right. Were at yeah. this point of the story. Well, and even more so than when it happens in Black Rainbow, when he uh, <clears throat> shoves the blade down that guy's throat. I mean, that is extremely like phallic yeah oh the brother swan thing yeah yeah there's a deleted scene i don't think this adds to the movie at all but there's a deleted scene where brother swan and jeremiah are leaving um having just lit mandy on fire in the sleeping bag right mm-hmm. another shitty where, scene uh, yeah it's a shitty scene and it just cut uh where swan's saying like i felt i think i might have felt a little of her energy going into me and jeremiah's like it's all mine all the energy goes <laughs> <Yeah>. to me <laughs> uh you are nothing and then like caresses his cheek and it's a little sexual uh-huh. But it doesn't. It doesn't add anything. It's. Uh, I don't think that Jeremiah needed to be having sex with all of his uh, followers, right? Or if he is, who cares? Like, it doesn't. The scene itself didn't really add much because you already know he's a uh, from the scene before with the uh, with the record playing that he is egotistical and thinks of the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, drives through him. Uh, but the end of the film, I don't know if you guys waited for the post-title sequence, uh, Samuel L. does not show up. But there are the drawings from Mandy, but the whole, uh, um, in a music, I'm sorry, in a movie full of music, the titles, the uh, final credits, completely silent. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the very end, you get Birdsong, like maybe the starlings that were killed with the crowbar by her dad, by Mandy's dad. Um. And then you have drawings of Nicolas Cage as yeah. Red. Yeah, that maybe she had done like, oh, at the beginning of the film. So that does lend a little bit more to, like, it doesn't matter if it is or isn't because it's the film that we watch and enjoy and love and experienced. But it, it adds a little bit more to it being um, that fantasy book that Mandy would have been sure. writing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting, and 
Um, one of the th- I don't really like 80s cinema very much at all, but one thing that I really appreciate about 80s cinema, and maybe it was all the cocaine, God knows what it was, but cocaine by the people doing it, or you were you doing a lot of cocaine as a child in the yes, 80s? Yes, as, as a seven <laughs> and eight year old, it was yeah. He Man and just rails. Yeah, Arizona folks. Yeah, <laughs> we grew up different there. Um, uh, there is in 80s cinema no desire to be realistic. Like plots for every kind of movie are just totally absurd and nobody needs a grounding. Wait, wait. What about Rambo 2? Rambo First Blood Part 2? Yes. <laughs> yes. Cobra, Rambo. These are not films. Uh, Rambo Part 2. That's not a documentary? Yeah. Okay. And it's not like there's not that Nolan-esque... Like, we have to ground everything in some sort of rational, gritty... Yeah. okay. Um, And Mandy operates in this... uh, Both of his films operate in this liminal space where he's not trying to tell you a realistic story. He's trying to show you something fantastic. Right. And that's such a a better approach to, to movie making for me. For sure. Well, speaking of his dad's film, Cobra also has a completely nonsensical cult as its centerpiece villains, um, which I still don't understand Cobra's cults, but Cobra's a great movie. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. (laughs) Crime is a disease. I'm the cure. (laughs) His toothpick. (laughs) Yeah. He's wearing the sunglasses. So good. Classic. Yeah, the cult makes no Um, sense, though. They like have a little. A few uh, Fourth of July is back. We went. We went to Longview, Washington, and saw some lumberjacks compete. And there yes, was yes. there was a chainsaw that was had a jet engine. Uh huh. As uh, so they could cut through wood like in seconds versus four seconds. Why? Yeah. I'm wondering if they would introduce jousting with chainsaws there. It seems like it would be very impractical and dangerous. Those dudes would totally be up for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you um, if you guys have never seen the Lumberjack Festival on July 4th weekend in Longview, Washington, it is incredible and worth worth the, the free, free price minutes. of admission. Yeah. <laughs> I got to check this out. Uh, I think uh, jousting with chainsaws would put the horses in danger, so I'm against it. Truth. I don't care about the people, Justin. <laughs> but yeah, maybe they could use one of those mechanical horses uh, with the two or wheels. a fucking <laughs> or motorcycle, any TV, <gasps> even better. Wow. Longview, Washington. Uh, get a hold of us. Shout out the details. Bezos, work it out. <laughs> uh, are we ready for some Google reviews? Yes. Okay, let's turn on the uh, red filter. Yep. Turn up really bright. Well, we're just ripping off Joe Bob now. Gary Piper, a year ago, says, You are one of two people when you watch this film. One, you watch the first ten minutes and then decide to watch Harry Potter instead. Poor you. (laughs) Two, you watch the first ten minutes and know you are in for a treat. Lucky you. That's that was it. very specific. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was like that review that they had for our podcast. You're one of two people. Either you're in the post-apocalypse listening to this on your Microsoft Zoom, or you're Ryan Tobias in the studio today. <laughs> uh, Peter Luna gives it one star. Man, you need to be on acid to understand this movie. P.S. Weed is not enough to cut it. Dot, dot, dot. LSD! <laughs> <laughs> Gilgamesh Lorenzahad says, an enigmatic fantasy, 
far better than Hollywood taste. I love this movie. Um, Royston Nixon says, Rubbish, why make films that are difficult to see? Turned it off after ten minutes. <gasps> and watched Harry Potter? And watched Harry Potter! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> so uh, is ma- ten minutes the mark for people? Is that... But if it happens, it, is it at a- ten minutes, it's only been four minutes into the movie. Yeah, that's King after Crimson has barely just stopped playing. Right. If they played the I full song, a- it'd be like halfway through. <laughs> I think the tone in the first... So, um, unlike past times when I watched this movie, uh, which obviously should be watched straight through, uh, for time reasons, I had to watch it in two parts. Mm. Um, and I got to where Mandy, uh, died, uh, in the first half. And then I watched the second half and the pace of the film is so incredibly different in Mm -hmm. both those halves. And I can see, um, I think the first 20 minutes or so is marvelous for setting up how wonderful their life is together. Right. But it is a tone that is like so lethargic and psychedelic that. I think we were both very fortunate to be able to watch it in theaters for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because you're forced to. Yeah. To to, to sit with it as opposed to get distracted by devices, phones. I mean, of course, if you're a regal cinema, you're allowed to, you're allowed to take phone calls right behind me. (laughs) Uh, Mason Robo says poo stains. <laughs> <laughs> Salty Stork says terrible, just terrible. Christy Silk says surreal, bizarre, extremely gory and violent, psychedelic acid trip from hell. Nicholas Papaz says crinkles, crinkles. <laughs> Patrick Chainery says hello, 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 hello. Kenneth Thurman gives it five stars. Pretty gay, but that's okay. Rusty Robot says LSD on Nick Cage. <laughs> Amber Chafin gives it one star. Bad toenails, toenails, toenails. Wait, is that an emoji? Nope. The word toenails okay. spelled out. Uh, Kathy Robinson says, I will never tr- trust Rotten Tomatoes again. And Typho0NXV gives it one star. Follow me on Twitter at Typho0NXV. <laughs> <laughs> wow, trolling Google reviews for Twitter follows. That's pretty... That's, that's Psychedelic acid trip Google reviews from hell. That's what we should call that um, segment. I'm surprised <laughs> that... Yeah, I'm surprised that some of these people didn't go on to do other work, especially the Cheddar Goblin. I think that... <laughs> I... I don't know. I don't know where else we could put him and what other films, but I, I think he has some potential. Yeah. Maybe if they revive the Leprechaun or uh, Chud. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, they that have a lot good. of similarities. Cheddar Goblin versus uh, Charlie ooh, Kaufman ooh, ending ooh, for ooh. either movie. Oh, when they do the when they do the live action Shrek, he could be the mini me of Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cheddar Goblin. I just whoa whoa. I just got confirmation. On the something came down from the CV truckers up north by Spirit River. Uh, Ch- Cheddar Goblin just got picked up by Disney Plus for a an exclusive miniseries. Oh, so awesome. it's called Cheddar Goblin. Is it like? Is it, wait, is it like a Mandalorian? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Charlie Kaufman ending for either of these. I have. I have one. Go ahead. Uh, it's for what? For Mandy? For Beyond the the Black Rainbow? I got nothing for Black Rainbow, but for Mandy. Okay, can I do? I'm gonna do Black Rainbow because yours is gonna be better than mine. Okay. Okay, go ahead. 
Okay, so Black Rainbow, we, we've seen the end of the film, right? Uh, the Rockers are dead. Um, uh, Barry's dead. He hit his head. And uh, the, the young lady's walking into town. So it's nighttime and she's going into town. And she gets inside the town, right? And there's these streets and they're bustling. There's all these people running around between these houses. And there's something scary that jumps out at her. And it's a monster. But then, like, as a viewer, we realize, oh, it's just Halloween, right? She's been locked up. She doesn't know what Halloween is. But she sees a scary monster. And, it, oh, okay, it's Halloween. Then she sees four boys dressed as Ghostbusters. And they're arguing about who's going to be Vinkman, <laughs> the Bill Murray character from Ghostbusters. Because no one wants to be Winston. And then she introduces herself. And she says she's hungry. Because she just got that white food, that shitty white food earlier on that tray. And she's been, like, walking around in the forest. So they make her some egos, And they go and they play Dungeons the dragons together and drink tank because it's the 1980s and you got it you know <laughs> happy God. ending incredible great job very that's good. great did you have to re-watch stranger things to no that was kind of burned in my head wow yeah, yeah. good work all right the ending ending of mandy yes it's the next day after what we've seen the uh, the bright sunshine in that little rock quarry where the church was uh sheriffs are there uh they're looking over the evidence of what happened uh, you know, we, we see all the dead bodies in the, the brightness of morning. Uh, another car comes up, and it's uh, an FBI car. And the sheriff, maybe the sheriff who was in the cutscene, he's like, never seen anything like this. Uh, we see the car stop, and then the FBI agent get out. We only see the FBI agent from the back. He has a windbreaker that says FBI. I feel like I know where this is going. The sheriff and the deputy say, do we have any leads on this? And leads, yeah. Uh, you know Red? He goes, yeah, I know Red. His wife was killed by these guys. The FBI agent says, Red? That can't be. I'm Red. And the camera pans over, and it's David Caruso, and he takes off his sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! The who who starts playing, and that's the end of the movie. That's amazing. Wow, I thought you were going more of a Twin Peaks route with that. But actually, that lends a really good point, actually, into, I think the reason they probably decide one of the reasons they decided to cut the sheriff scene is that this exists in a world where there are no police and there aren't even outside people. There's just no one else that exists in the story besides the people that you actually see. It's a completely closed off universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Very special movie. It's not one of my favorite of all time, but well, one of my favorite Nicholas Cage's of all time. You're lame. So I've seen more movies than you. Uh, hey, I've seen a few more. Yeah. All right. Uh, respond to our reader poll or listener poll about your favorite planet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, good, the bad, the good, the bad, the good, the pot and the ugly um, on Instagram, Twitter, social media. Yeah. G- getter. No more Gab. Gab was pulled. <laughs> yeah. Gab got taken down. All right. It, w- it wasn't our fault. Our, our Cohen brother tweets either. <laughs> yeah. Or not. Or they're not called tweets. I don't know what they're called. They're called Gabs. Oh, yeah. So our gabs about the Coen Brothers might have gotten gab shut down. Yeah. Uh, Parlor, Twitch, BitShoot, and BitWave are all still up. So <laughs> give those a subscribe. <laughs> uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this week. You had some excellent insight. Yes. Great guest. Thank you very much. And you're going to be on a, a couple of episodes, right? Or the which episode? Willie's Wonderland? Yeah, he'll be around to help us wrap things up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Can't yeah. wait. Sounds great. That it? Yeah, we're done. It was a very long episode. I think we missed the entire mm-hmm. Euro Cup championship. Uh, remember, it. listeners, um, 
remember, when I die, bury me deep, lay two speakers at my feet, put some headphones on my head, and play the good, the pawn, the ugly, cage uncaged when I'm dead. <laughs> All right. God job. <laughs> right. Say they love me.